Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder, and I am in Arnie Atkinson's backyard in Flower Mound, Texas with Yale Kim, a dude who I have wanted to get on really oh, since, since those first few episodes, because Kay and I knocked out a whole bunch of names of people that we wanted to get on, and yours was right up at the top. And so, Yale, welcome, my man. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be on. I know, truthfully, I've probably been dodging this for a while, <laughs> so it's, it's good to finally be on. Yeah. So, first question I ask, mm-hmm. what you're smoking? Uh, first time having this, but it's a Tatuai. Big surprise. Um, anyone who knows me knows I love Tatuai. So it's a Tatuai Limited Kappa Especial. Never had it, but uh, was recommended at the local cigar lounge, so thought yeah. I'd give it a roll. Nice. What are you having? And I have a Hoyo de Monterey Habana. Epicure Especial nice. gift of yours. Yeah. From you. Yeah, glad and, to do it. Yeah. And uh, this thing is quite delicious. Mm. This is quite delicious. Yeah. yeah. They're always great too when you, I was telling you earlier, we uh, aged a little bit. So I think it's about 18 months old. So it's got a little bit of time in the humidor. And um, yeah, just love, you know, I love the community where we're in. Love the generosity that people walk in, the humility, and just being able to bless people. So, yeah. So tell me about you. Where'd you grow up? Yeah. Born in Korea, right? No, no? actually. Okay. Uh, it was Jung then. Jung was, was born in Korea. Okay. I, my parents, it's interesting, Jung's mom and my mom actually went to the same school. What? In Korea, Yeah. And um, it's one of those schools where the alumni, they all know each other. Yeah. So after years of Jung and I being friends, I think last year, Jung met my mom and they started talking in Korean way better than I could speak in (laughs) Korean, by the way. I only know enough to be able to order food, right? (laughs) And so they're hanging out, talking. We're all hanging out and they're talking and they find out, oh, you went to Iwa. And Jung's like, my mom went to Iwa. And so they're like, and then it turns out they actually know each other. Like, not just know each other, they were like on the, uh, they were served on, I guess, what do you call it? The executive committee of the alumni, alumni. association. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just crazy. And so they start talking on the phone. And it, so anyways, you know, who would have known kind of a deal. Yeah. But I grew up in a little town, Cerritos in Southern California right on the border of L.A. and Orange County. Yeah. You know, I think Cerritos' claim to fame back then was the Cerritos Auto Square. And I don't know if you remember Ernest. Ernest Goes to Jail, the movies. Yeah, yeah. So Ernest used to come out on TV and do all the advertisements. And then he talked about the Cerritos Auto Square, which um, was a great revenue generator for the city. It was originally a, uh, I guess... I don't know, settled is the right word. Obviously, it was uh, that whole area belonged to Mexico before the U.S. got it. But then the Dutch came in and it was Dutch uh, dairy farmers Mm -hmm. that that owned a a bunch of the land, started growing cows. And uh, I remember, you know, I, I was born in 79. So I remember like in the early 80s where there were, I mean, it was undeveloped, huge, you know, spots of land that had, well, not huge, like Texas huge, but Cal- Southern California huge, yeah. where you had cows. 
and the town center didn't even exist back then. And so it's just an interesting uh, scenario. And, and the Dutch actually planted their churches there and that kind of a thing. And the reason I mentioned the auto square was because the revenue that they generated from this thing, just the tax revenue, I think they generate like $80 million of tax revenue or something obscene every yeah. year. Yeah. And they would pump it into community services and their schools. And so all the Koreans saw that and said, you know what, we want to, you know, buy their, yeah, because it's a school district. Yeah. So grew up in Cerritos in, you know, went to school there, 80s and 90s. And, uh, you know, I'll fast forward a little bit. It was not walking with the Lord, even though my parents were okay. going to church. Yeah. And I don't know if you know this, but in the Korean American community, um, well, let me, let me rewind. So nothing against the Chinese. Got, I love the Chinese, but they have a saying, the Chinese come to the States and they build their restaurants. The Koreans come and they build their churches. And so in the Korean American community, what you would experience, especially back in the 80s, 90s, was the church was kind of the center of Korean American life. Yeah, life, society, community. community. Yeah. And so we were part of a church, started in Fullerton, moved out to Norwalk, and then went back into, uh, well, went to Buena Park, no, Anaheim, and then at the old Melody Land place, and then went back into Fullerton. They bought the old Nabisco plant or factory, and, and they ended up being there. So I grew up Christian, Presbyterian theology background, and reformed, and then, um, but was not walking with Jesus. I mean, it was cultural. It wasn't personal. Now, I had some moments growing up where yeah. it was personal. Yeah. And I think about third grade, one of the most amazing moments for me was uh, sitting in my bed, uh, reading the book of John. And uh, just, you know, back then I didn't know. I'm a, I'm a third grader. What did I know? But now that I think about it, reading the book of John, just experiencing actually the presence of God, like the Holy Spirit just becoming really, I mean, clear to me mm -hmm. in that moment as a third grader reading. That was a powerful moment for me. I think, you know, growing up in that culture, I had some amazing moments of prayer. I'll share a couple stories, I guess. Third grade, I'm eating this fish. Uh, my parents were both realtors. They worked, you know, long hours. Mm -hmm. Uh, mom could not cook dinner, so she'd come home and she brought home this Chinese-Korean fish meal. And I loved that thing. So I'm eating it as fast as I can. And Steve, no joke, I got like this fish bone stuck in my throat. Yeah. Pretty big fish bone. Yeah. And I, my mom had a background of nursing. And so she's trying to... Heimlich. Yeah, she's trying to do all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Short of the Heimlich. So okay. it's like, how do you knock that thing down? Yeah. I get it stuck in my throat and I'm freaking out as a kid because probably 15 minutes in when this thing is not going down and you tried everything, I'm freaking out. So sorry guys who are listening to this, but I'm vomiting on the hardwood floor yeah. and then I'm seeing blood, right? Yeah. So I'm freaking out and I'm going, what am we gonna do? So my dad rushes home from work and I know it's a big deal. Like, uh, you know, I'm seeing blood on the floor and I'm going, what are we going to do? So my mom's like, we're going to have to take you to the hospital. But before we take you to the hospital, why don't we pray? And so I get down on my knees, 
start to pray. Steve, no joke. Okay, I'm a Presbyterian reform guy, right? Yeah, yeah. As we're praying, I'm feeling the bone move in my throat and it goes down. No need to go to the hospital. Like, I'm like, this is crazy to me. So I had like a couple of these kind of prayer experiences. Yeah. In the 80s, my dad loved to travel. So I get my whole travel thing from my dad. He loved to travel. We'd go down to Mexico. Like you grew up in Southern California, 80s. It's so one of the things you did is you go down to Tijuana. I'm trying Ensenada. You'd go down and get, get churros and lobster. Lobster was like, like I mean, yeah. it was dirt cheap back then. It yeah. was like, you know, $5 maybe. Yeah. Churros, you'd get a whole bunch of churros for five bucks. And you loved it. And so my dad would do these things where he would drive around. And I remember one time we were going in somewhere in the Southwest. And, you know, this was way before Google Maps, yeah, yeah. MapQuest, right? You know, Thomas Guide Maps were the thing, yeah. you know? And so we ended up somehow on some dirt road somewhere. You know, it must have been a dotted line road. Yeah. And so we ended up on dirt road. And back in the 80s, tire um, technology was nowhere near what it is today. And so... Uh, we ended up with Blow a flat out. tire. Yeah. yeah. And there was no no cell phone service, no nothing. And so we're sitting out here on a dirt road. And my dad's got me up on the roof of the car. It's hot outside. And we're like, what are we going to do? And uh, apparently, now this is the story that my mom tells. I don't really remember this, but apparently I got, I was on the roof of the car. I start praying out loud, like God send us somebody to help us yeah and sure enough like this is an empty deserted dirt road around sure enough this truck comes around i don't know if it was a tow truck or whatever but a truck that comes around the corner and all of a sudden we see this truck out in the middle of nowhere and the guy pulls over to help us and my mom goes there's something on this kid now not all my <laughs> stories are like that because there was a point there's a, one of the most memorable stories my mom tells about me is I must have been like, I don't know, five, six years old. And this was way before child seats, right? Like oh, yeah. in cars. Oh, yeah. So I was always the instigator. So I'd be jumping up and down in the back with my younger sister in the How back. How many siblings seats. did you have? I just had one younger sister, but okay. she's uh, age difference is a year. Okay. Total overachiever. <laughs> I mean, big time overachiever, right? She wrote a 21 page paper in seventh grade. Okay. <laughs> This is, I mean, she ended up becoming an attorney. And then after she got her JD, went to Europe, got her LLM. I mean, just married a guy with two graduate degrees. I mean, these guys are brainiacs, <laughs> but overachiever. But anyways, back to the story. We, I was always instigating, even back then when we were kids. And so I'm jumping up and down in the back seat as my mom's driving us to Santa Ana to go see dad. And my mom does the classic, you know, you better sit down or I'm going to pull this car over kind of a deal. Yeah. And I guess this, what I did was I said, go ahead, do it. <laughs> and so my mom pulls <laughs> off on the five freeway, Southern California, just south of the 91. And she pulls the car over on the shoulder. Yeah. And the story goes, I get out of the car and start going, I'm going to walk. And I walk down the shoulder of the five freeway. <laughs> right. And my mom's freaking out, like, this kid, what am I going to do with him? And so, you know, to dispel any I false ideas that I was like any kind of like saint when I was a kid yeah. is, you know, tell that story. But uh, I guess I've been a stubborn kid 
and I feel like I'm you? still. Yeah, what? yeah. You? <laughs> and I, I'm a 41 year old stubborn kid still, you know. Um, so pray for my wife. <laughs> but yeah, but grew up in Southern California. That stubbornness definitely got me in trouble going into high school. It was not doing the right stuff. How so? Oh man, um, got into drugs. Yeah. Got into this culture of hanging out with guys that join gangs. You know, we're right near Long Beach. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the thing. 90s rap, you know, you can ask Jung about this. 90s rap, Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, all this stuff was coming out. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we had no business getting involved in that stuff. But it crept into our high schools. And uh, so much so, I mean, we were doing drugs in weight training class. And it was like the only time... Uh, rival gang members got together was uh, when we were doing drugs and weight training. And then I remember every Wednesday we'd have to run the mile. And so one of the things I did was I would intentionally run fast the first lap and then we would have to run around the baseball diamond at Cerritos High School. And when we got to the dugouts, we would all just hang out in the dugouts and smoke marijuana. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then we would be the last guys coming in. And the teachers knew this. You know, and so we'd come in late and they're like, "Uh uh-huh, guys. And it was so bad back then. This was my first two years of high school. We, I would instigate fights between different groups on the high school campus. And the student intervention agent would pull me in the first period on Monday, which happened to be my chemistry class in my sophomore year. And he would tell me, we know you're doing this. We know you're doing that. And I would sit there and just, it was crazy to me because they knew exactly what was going on and i was like you got cameras everywhere or what's going on and i would just sit there in the room and just deny everything but they knew what was going on long story short that summer at the end of my sophomore year the groups of friends that i was hanging out with were getting into all sorts of trouble we would go to summer school and back then um, summer school was two things for us well, really for my family, it meant two things. Number one, it was like free childcare for my parents. And then summer school, number two for them was driver's ed, especially in sophomore year, it was driver's mm-hmm. ed. And it wasn't like remedial in nature. It was more about getting ahead. Yeah. So taking classes to get ahead. And so we'd go to summer school, but sometimes, most of the time, we would skip class. And so I'd wait for my dad to drop me off and then take off. And then as soon as I knew he took off, I'd leave campus and we'd walk up the street to the local donut shop that had the Street Fighter II machine. Mm-hmm. And we'd hang out there and uh, put our quarters on the top and reserve our spots to play. And we would actually buy packs of cigarettes because they would sell it to us back then. Yeah. And we would sit there, smoke cigarettes outside, have donuts, and then play Street Fighter II and hang out. Now, this is the mid, early, mid-90s, right? So yeah. we had pagers. No one had cell phones, you know, at least not at that age. And so we'd have beepers, Motorola beepers, and we would get, we'd do pager code. And every once in a while, we'd get hit up, and we would know, okay, someone's going to come pick us up. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking at pager code and going, okay, someone's going to pick us up. We're going to go hang out. And, uh, you know, one of the kids would break into their parents' liquor cabinet, and make some crazy concoction and bring it and we'd hang out and, you know, drink because that's what you did if you, yeah. you know, wanted to be cool or whatever. Yeah. And uh, we got 
hit up. Someone's going to come pick us up. Someone showed up in a Toyota minivan. We got in and we started smoking our cigarettes. And I just thought, man, this is so cool. Until, Steve, we started, like, people started putting out their cigarettes in the upholstery of the minivan. Mm. And I'm like, wait a minute. Whose car is this? And no one could answer me. No one could answer me. In the front seat was this 12-year-old kid. His name was Andrew. And he goes, goes, we don't know, man. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? And he goes, I stole it. And so I'm sitting there going, what? And I mean, 12-year-old kid, no joke. I mean, turns out he had dropped out of school, seventh grade. He had joined this gang. And he was eager to prove himself to his older brothers. And so he would do anything. He would steal cars for them. He would do anything. That was the deal. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up that day going to somebody's house. Both parents worked at the time. We sat in the backyard getting high, drinking. And then the guys from the gang showed up. And Andrew was their entertainment in some some form or fashion. Mm -hmm. And so they had gotten some kind of, I think... You know, thinking back then, probably some kind of drug. And they're like, hey, smoke this, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he was the entertainment and, it, you know, whatever. But I remember looking at this kid going, man, what in the world? He's 12 years old. I, I think I was 15 or 16 at the time. And I'm just looking at going, what the heck is going on? And uh, fast forward a couple months later, and I find out this kid, he was walking his dog and a car full of rival gang members pulled up to him and they flashed signs and then they started chasing him and he ran into a path of an oncoming bus or something like that, a truck, and died at 12. And I'm sitting there going, this is crazy. And that summer, a couple of groups of friends had done some stupid things, you know, uh, assault with a weapon, all sorts of dumb stuff, got in trouble with the police, with the law. And uh, thank God I wasn't there at that moment. Yeah. At any of the moments they were doing this stuff. But, you know, you're a high school student. Your friends are getting arrested. And I'm sitting there, you know, this kid dies. And I'm sitting there going like, dude, something's got to change. Yeah. And uh, my dad was freaking out. Like, what do I do with this kid? At the time I was doing Taekwondo, Taekwondo. And they were like, what do you, you know, my dad was talking to my ma- the master there, and he's like, what do I do with this kid? He's like, do I bribe him? Because growing up, that was the thing. Like, yeah. if you did well, you got stuff. You got a car or whatever, you know. Uh, my sister got a BMW, right? <laughs> Not me. I didn't do so well in high school. But I got... Um, my dad's sitting there like, what do I do? And my, my Taekwondo master goes, no, do not get him a car. That's like the worst thing to do. And everyone was trying to steer me correct, but nobody knew how to do it. Yeah. And I got to that low point that summer where all this stuff was happening. And I was like, what do I do? And my, the only thing my dad knew to do at that point was go, listen, remember that church you grew up at? I'm like, yeah, all those friends. Yeah, I'm going to send you to the high school retreat that they're having. And I said, okay, I'll go. So for five days, we're up at a Calvary Chapel retreat center up in, I don't know, Arrowhead or Big Bear or something like that. And uh, this guy, uh, business guy who also has his MDiv, 
was a pa- kind of a pastor at the church. I mean, the church we went to, we had about 200 full-time missionaries that we supported, apparently, at the church, uh, for this high school tree. Actually, at the time, I wasn't going to that church, but mm-hmm. there's more to that story. But I go to that retreat. This pastor gets up there in, you know, with a, a thick Korean accent, speaking English, talks about the love of God. And then he says, if you, uh, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he gives this message. It's almost like this classic youth retreat. The last night gives a gospel presentation. And man, I just fall on my knees and go, I, I need a change. I need Jesus. And it was like love just was poured over me. Growing up, had you never heard that love aspect in that Presbyterian Reformed Korean American you church? Know, I I remember doing the Westminster Catechism. I remember all sorts of stuff. But that one moment, maybe because I was stubborn, I don't know. Yeah. I, I had that moment where... It was the right message at yeah, the right time. exactly. It was the right message at the right time. And I was. it just hit me. Yeah. And so at that moment, you know, the Holy Spirit broke into my heart. And just God became so real at that moment. I needed that. It changed my life. And gave up drugs right there, then and there. And decided I was going to go to that church. Hmm. And this is interesting because you got to know, like, we yeah. grew up in this family. It was really interesting. I, I was stubborn. Everybody was kind of doing their own thing. My mom was going to a different church. My sister was going to a different church. My dad was going to a different church. We just, we were, we were individualistic in some ways. We were all driven to a certain degree yeah. to whatever we, I guess, whatever we were pursuing. And at that moment, it just changed everything for me. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to this church. And I don't think I even made a voluntary decision that I'm going to turn my life around. It just, it was the thing that happened at that moment. And so school starts up my junior year. And the first week, uh, actually it was the Wednesday, both my parents show up to pick me up at school, which never happens. It's always one parent that was picking us, dropping us off at school and picking us up at school. So it was a little weird. And I'm sitting there going, okay, what's, what's the What deal? happened? Yeah. And they're going, oh, we're going to go pick up your sister at the school across the street, which was a public magnet school that my sister took a test in sixth grade. She got in. The school took like the top 10% of the students from the different elementary schools. We started from seventh grade on through high school. And um, just a school filled with some high achievers. And so we go over to that school, and usually there's the drop-off pickup area, but they park the car in the parking lot, and they go, get out. And I'm like, oh, okay. We walk into the school, into the administration office, and this tall white lady comes out. She puts her hand down and goes, oh, I'm, I'm Miss uh, Zavala. I'm the school counselor here, and uh, don't worry. We'll have you transferred in here, and you'll be taking classes starting tomorrow. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, um, now at the time, like I had no idea like how I got in there. I thought it was, it, it was, it was the grace of God that I got in there. I mean, to give you some context about this school, 
I scored, uh, you know, when the SAT was out of 1600 back then, yeah. I scored a 1210 on my SAT. Yeah. And I brought the average down. Okay. I mean, I, was, I think, sorry guys, if any of you from Whitney are listening to this from my class of 97, but I was the only person who did not pass the AP US history exam. Right? Like, they're, they're, it was, it, that was the school that I was at. I was ranked, by the time I graduated, I was ranked fifth from the bottom, right? And I went to UC Riverside, I got into UC Santa Barbara. So upset I didn't get to UC Irvine, but um, that was a school. And so it was shocking to me when, when the school counselor was like, oh, we'll have you transferred in here. And so much so I told my friends at the time, hey, I got into your school. None of them believed me. They're like, get out of here. We don't believe you. And probably three weeks in, they're like, you know, they didn't see me. They're like, maybe he did go to that school. <laughs> and so, but God knew what he was doing because as soon as I got into school, I got involved in the Christian club there. A couple of the uh, guys from church were also involved in the Christian club there. Several of the people from my sister's school, uh, church, went to school there. And um, I had been playing the guitar for a little bit and I got involved with worship leading. Probably the most impactful thing was getting involved in prayer. As a high school student, mid-90s in Cerritos, we experienced kind of this mini revival on four different high school campuses and uh, started doing prayer. And, you know, Jung says, I'm not a morning, anyone who really knows me, I'm not a morning person, I'm a creative type. Yeah. You knew God was moving because I'd get up at 4.45 in the morning and shower and then my buddy who didn't even have his driver's license, his dad was elder at the church, would take the Toyota Previa, come pick us up, uh, several of us up, and we would go to the church campus, go in the high school room, and we would turn on a Winds of Worship CD by the Vineyard, and we would pray Korean style for like 30 minutes, out loud, just praying. And then we would turn on the lights, turn off the CD, open up our Bibles and read for 30 minutes. And we started every day, six days a week, Wow. that day that wow. way i mean and we would see so this is completely transformational oh, totally when, trans when when absolutely you went, you went to that retreat oh yeah totally complete uh, transformation. complete transformation and i mean i didn't become a saint or anything no. but i mean it just no. changed my life yeah. even when i got to that school i was kind of upset that i was at that school because i'm like i'm sitting here with a bunch of nerds and for like three weeks <laughs> i'm sitting there like i don't want to be here but god knew what he was doing yeah and so in that season, Steve, I would show up at school afterwards and I would feel like God was speaking to me. And I remember I grew up Presbyterian, so I don't even know how to explain this at the time. But people were, we were experiencing something in our high school that was like, it was special. We saw it in our high school, but it was also happening in three other high schools in the area. And people were getting saved. Our Christian club went from, I mean, I think we would have you know, we were on a campus of 1,200 stu 1, students, no, 1,000 students, and we had 300 of them signed up for the, to be members of the Christian Club. Every Friday, we would take over this one hallway, and we'd have 100 students there. And we'd, have, we'd worship, and then we'd have some preacher from a youth group come in and preach. And we just, we saw people getting saved. Over the next two years, we'd held, hold rallies. Um, hundreds of students would come out. And we would do little prayer meetings in, in living rooms on the weekends. And it was united prayer happening in living rooms 
we would worship and pray and three hours would go just like that. Mm -hmm. And it was unbelievable. I mean, people get saved. We remember, I remember Ben at Cerritos High School, the school that I had let, transferred from, Ben would go out there and he would preach the gospel. He'd step up to gang members and just share. I mean, and he used to roll with these guys, you know, and people were yeah. like, dude, what's going on? I mean, like people were getting saved. It was just a, a really cool season. And uh, I remember my senior year, we decided we would do this missions rally. And we rented Chuck Swindoll's old church, EV Free Fullerton, Brea. And we got a guy from, uh, at the time, Southern California College to come and preach. And we did this missions rally. And it was totally student-led movement. And we had 2,200 young people show up at this thing. I mean, I, that was my first step into l large events. Yeah. 2,200 young people show up totally student-led. We gave a gospel presentation. 37 people came to accept Christ. Then we gave another um, call for people who wanted to give some their lives to some form of missions. 300 students, wow. young people showed, stood up and said, yeah. yeah, I want to do that. And it was one of those moments where it was just, it felt perfect. Like something was, it was really amazing. And so that, that changed my life. Yeah. And, um, Graduated high school, went on to UC Riverside as a college student there. I joke around. My major, even though I was, uh, there's a story to it, but my major, I joke around, was, was really Christian ministries and evangelism. Yeah. And so. Um, what was it? What were you studying? Uh, well, at the time I went in as undeclared, was a business major. Yeah. I remember as a freshman struggling because I felt the call of God on my life and was really struggling and I didn't want to do that. Like I was like, no, I'll go into business. I'll make money. I'll, I'll cut a check. You know, I'll serve you God by cutting a check and whatever, going to church, but I want to do this. And God just really grabbing my heart and saying, no, I want you. You know? Now, back then, I mean, it's just, almost 30 years ago now at this point, <laughs> 25 years uh -huh. ago. Back then, there wasn't this, generally, this idea that, you know, business could be your mission. Mm -hmm. And do you think that kind of played into that, that you had this heart for business, but you also had this heart for mission, but you just couldn't reconcile the two? You couldn't see how they really fit together other than writing a check. Yeah, I think, so I have some experiences, especially in the last 15 years, that really played into that. Yeah. So I remember as a freshman wrestling with that. To me, it was a, it's dichotomous. It, it, it couldn't yeah. be the same. It was one or the other. Yeah. Right? And to a certain degree, I had to go through that because there was a dying to my flesh and to myself, my own desires. Yeah. So I would remember just in tears, you know, in, in my dorm room, wrestling with God <laughs> at night, you know, like when we're supposed to be sleeping in tears. And my roommate must have thought I was a freak, like really, right? <laughs> but like, I'm sitting there wrestling with this, you know? And what happened was I got an ulcer. What? Yeah, my freshman year, I got an ulcer. 19 years old? Yeah, 19 years old, I got an ulcer. And I was like at the student health clinic, right? And I was like, find God. Heck? Yeah, find God, you win, right? I was like, all right. So I changed my major, became a philosophy major, and started taking philosophy courses, you know, intro, symbolic logic, all this stuff. Enjoyed it, loved it. 
And it was great because I had, uh, I think the chair of the philosophy department back then, Dr. Westin, he wasn't into relativism at all. I mean, he was like, listen, behind that door, there's either there is or there is not a yellow trash can. Don't come to me with this relativism crap. You know, I mean, he was like that. I mean, it was great. So that was my freshman year in college. Uh, sophomore year, I was down at UC San Diego with my old high school friends. So what happened was we all graduated. We went to the different UC schools and we led United Worship and Prayer Gatherings at Berkeley, San Diego, UCLA. Mm. And I, I led the one at UC Riverside. Yeah. It was really cool. InterVarsity, Campus Crusade at Riverside. We experienced an explosion at um, Asian American Christian Fellowship. My freshman year, I was involved in two different fellowships, but then just kind of started focusing on interfellowship. And, but at AACF, we saw a growth like threefold. Our freshman year, we were a group of 30. By sophomore year, we were at 100. Then we went to 300. And it, we, I remember like every quarter, we'd have to move rooms because the rooms were too small. And um, it was just uh, amazing. And I, really, I attribute that to our prayer meetings that we would have. We would go meet up at Eric's apartment, and we would have these prayer meetings. And it was just, it was powerful. And we didn't do anything different except do the prayer thing. And God would just show up at these large group meetings. And so it was just really cool to see this thing happen. People just, it was just amazing. We would have our own little community on the campus. And then we would realize that we had to do evangelism. And so we would do evangelistic events on the campus. And we would band with InterVarsity crew. And every quarter, we one of the groups would give up their large group meeting. And we'd have a united gathering. Oh, and you'd have cool. like hundreds that's of students cool. that would get that's together cool. and do that. Yeah. And we would do this evangelistic stuff. So I went down to UCSD at one point because I'm in charge of this interfellowship thing that I took over from a guy named Joshua. Go down there. And I'm wrestling with some stuff, primarily who are we going to have come speak at our next big gathering. And I'm sitting there, and this white Southern Baptist preacher gets up to preach. And I, I say white because you got to remember, I grew up in Southern California, and really, like, in Southern California, you could grow up pretty much hanging around with just your own culture, subculture group. I mean, like, there's people in Southern California, you grow up Hispanic, you don't have to even speak English, no English, right? Yeah. Like there's Koreans, like my parents know English pretty relatively well, but I mean, you know, they didn't really have to speak English that much because you just grew up in that culture. You went to church, you hang out with friends that were that, you know. So like this white Southern Baptist preacher gets up there and starts talking about the glory of God. And uh, I didn't know he had gotten involved in the passion movement. Uh, his son was a college student there. He was actually captain of the surf team. Just unbelievable, like this guy getting to know him. But as he was preaching about the glory of God, I felt like this tug on my heart. I felt like God was saying, I, you need to go talk to him. And mm -hmm. I was like, what's up? And I, and I felt like that's the guy we need to have come speak at our school. So I'm like, I don't know this guy. You know, and you grow up in church, like especially in Asian culture where you're respecting your elders. Uh, Pastor Joe at the time was in his 40s, you know, mm -hmm. late 40s. And I'm sitting there going like, okay, how do I even approach this guy? I'm sitting there as like shy Asian boy. Right? And I'm like, uh. and so I wait till the very end, you know, and he's about to leave after this whole meeting's done. And I just go up to him. I'm nervous. And I go, uh, I think 
we, you know, I'm from UC Riverside. I think we'd love for you to come and speak at our, our, our United gathering. And he goes, okay, I'm open to it. Why don't you come and grab a couple of your leaders and come down and we'll have sandwiches at my house and we'll, we'll talk about it. So I'm sitting there going, okay, this is weird. Like pastors don't invite us to their houses, you know, that kind of a thing. But he was so relational, yeah. right? And so this was yeah. my, like, this broke me into Southern Baptist Caucasian world. And so I grabbed the guy from crew, the leader, the staff guy from crew, one of the guy, leaders from InterVarsity. We drove down and I brought my guitar because we always did worship and prayer type stuff. And, you know, we had sandwiches. Then we went to the living room and I brought out the guitar, started playing and we were going to have a prayer meeting. And so by the time we're done with the worship going into the prayer part, he kind of looks at me with this look and his son is also looking at me and I'm like, this is odd. And he goes, what are you doing this summer? And I go, uh, nothing that, that I know of. He goes, why don't we talk after this? I'm like, okay. And so he asked me to actually come, uh, they're starting a collegiate ministry. You know, they had been impacted by passion, the passion conferences. He goes, we're starting this collegiate ministry and we'd love for you to come and intern at our church and come lead worship for this thing. And I'm going, nah, you're like, uh, I'm going, I'm serving at my church in Anaheim at the time on the weekends. I'm driving home, you know, doing laundry at mom and dad's house as a college student. And I'm like, nah, I don't think so. Well, the Lord tells me, I think like three months later, you know, I want you to resign from, you know, leading worship at, at church. And I want you to stay in Riverside. Cause at the time I'd been kind of had one foot in Riverside, one foot in, in back home in North Orange County. And he said, you know, I want you to just be in Riverside for a little bit. So I was like, all right, I was in Riverside going to Greg Laurie's church, Harvest at the time, mm -hmm. just building community in Riverside. And finally, one day the pastor goes from, Pastor Joe from San Diego goes, come down. And I said, all right, I'll come down. And he goes, I'll bring your guitar. And I was like, all right, I'll bring my guitar. So I go down there and they've got this double wide trailer in the back, you know, behind the sanctuary. And Saturday night, about 10 college students get together and I'm leading worship. And the presence of God, just the manifest presence of God is in that room, like my old high school prayer meetings in the living rooms. I mean, it was powerful. Yeah. It was one of those moments, Steve, where I'm like, okay, we got to do this. And so the next week I drive down and same deal. And I'm like, what is going on? And so one week leads into another, leads into another. And that whole summer was just that. The college group in the meanwhile, I mean, this is our summer. Most of the students have gone to, you know, home or whatever. We grow to like, I think 30. So we went from 10 to 30. It was powerful times. And I tell my parents what every Asian parent wants to hear. It's like, I'm going to take a quarter off. <laughs> right? and so I'm like I'm taking a quarter off I'm going to serve at this church interning my parents are not happy but they're like alright I didn't really give them a choice so what, what else can they say so I'm serving at the church one quarter turns into two which turns into a whole year and I pretty much drop out of college and serve there and um, the group grows to about like 95 mm -hmm. college students we've got students from university crude coming from UCSD, San Diego State. And um, what was really powerful about that time was 
I mean, we're in the, at the time when I showed up at that church, we're, I mean, it was the typical Southern Baptist church, meaning like our average age was, you know, in their late 40s, early 50s. We didn't have a lot of young people. We didn't have diversity. When I showed up, I was like, oh yeah, okay, this, this is interesting. I'm like, you know, uh, one of only three Asian people in the church, in the congregation. But that really helped me kind of break down cultural barriers for me and yeah. uh, stepped into yeah. that place. And what happened was so amazing because the older generation stepped up and said, you know what, we'll disciple the college students. Ooh. And so we had like one-on-one, -on -one, two-on-one discipleship relationships happening with these college students while they're in college. This never happens. This doesn't hardly happens anywhere. And most of those college students right now are not only walking with the Lord, but they're serving in their churches. Some of them have gone on into the mission field. You know, I think about John. John went on to become a doctor, but gave himself to a, a season of serving as a missionary for two years. You had uh, guys like, I want to say Willis. I think he went into investment banking, but he gave himself to missions for a season or to ministry for a season. I mean, these guys, I mean, we were just seeing amazing spiritual growth, yeah. maturity, discipleship. You know, most people, when they go to college, you know, the statistics are ridiculous. It's lopsided. It's like 90, 95% of them walk away from the church, mm -hmm. walk away from the Lord. It was like the opposite. And it, it really attributed to this whole discipleship. You saw a generation adopting another generation. Mm. And it was powerful. We would see, I remember, I think it was Monica. Monica was like freaking out. because She's like, I've got this college debt. What am I going to do? and asking us for prayer. And all of a sudden, uh, one day she gets a check in the mail, $10,000 or something like that, pay off college loans. Did she know who it came from? I don't think she knew. Wow. It was probably a cashier's check or something, but it was just crazy. Like we would see things like this happen. And uh, it was unbelievable. But in that season, Steve, as powerful and amazing as those things were, I didn't have the character so let me, before I get to there, I, it was interesting. So a year into serving at this church, our worship pastor at the church takes a position at a different church. And at the time I'm, I'm doing college and high school, we have two bands in high school. I mean, drums, electric guitar, bass, the whole deal, keys. And the pastor is recognizing that there needs to be a shift to reaching young people, which is really sh kind of upsetting kind of the culture that was there initially. And so he was a Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary yeah. guy, journey, you know, went on missions as journeyman. We had brought in Jeff Lewis from the IMB, served, uh, preached for a whole summer. Just, it was an amazing church. They'd reach out to the school down the street and the um, city of San Diego basically came to us and said, listen, we love what you're doing, adopting that school. We want you to do it at all the schools in the school district. You know, we started at 513, gave this, the ministry like half a million dollars, said, get churches to partner with the schools and go after and do this. I mean, we were seeing some amazing things. At the same time, I was recognizing my short failings, and I'll get to that in a second. What, what happened was the worship pastor takes a position at another church, and the church, the pastors come to me and say, hey, we want you to be the worship director at the church. Mm -hmm. Big church, yeah. services. We had two services, and I'm sitting there going, like, wait a minute, 
You know, like the only time I led worship at big church was, you know, when the kids took over that w once a year and we led the service, right? Yeah. And it was, and so they're like, we want to go where you're going. We want to sing, you know, yeah. the songs that, you know, the Chris Tomlin songs, the Vineyard songs. And I'm sitting there going like, I don't know if you know what you're asking. They're like, no, we know. We want to go in that direction. So here I am as a 20-year-old kid, snot-nosed kid. And I was still stubborn. I was still, you know, I mean, there's things that God was still yeah. trying to, you know, yeah. uh, work in my life. But they said, we want you to do it. And so I remember the pastor was smart. The pastor was real smart in how he did it. But I mean, I think we lost a third of our congregants. You know, we brought drums in, electric guitars, you know, uh, some of the Congress like, it's too loud, you know, that kind of stuff. We, we went into getting in-ear monitors way before that became popular in, in churches mm -hmm. uh, just because we had to. And I was leading worship at church, and uh, it was great. I thought, Steve, I had made it. I was going around leading worship at different things, and I, I'm not even that great of a worship leader, frankly, but I thought I had made it. I dropped out of college. I was in ministry. I was doing this stuff. I was arrogant when I think about it back then. And I remember one day, one weekend, we went to go do a men's retreat. And at the men's retreat, led worship, and it was it was powerful. But we would go sit down in these t round tables, five, six of us. We'd look at, at each other across the table, and we would ask each other the hard questions. And Steve, I knew I was in trouble because we would ask each other the hard questions and I, I could not look my brother in the eye and tell him the truth. Mm. Like that I was dealing as a 21 year old kid on staff at a church that I was, I was looking at pornography. I was sleeping with my girlfriend and I couldn't come out with that. And so for a whole week after that retreat, man, I was like, there was this heaviness. And something was rubbing my heart the wrong way, and I knew I had to deal with this, and I didn't know how to deal with it. That particular week, because my pastor Joe was in charge of pastoral prayer in San Diego, at least in his region at the time, and yeah. he had a, a sanctuary, he would open up his sanctuary to different people. And a guy named Lou Engle, this was just after 2000, a guy named Lou Engle, probably 2001, a guy named Lou Engle showed up to town, never heard of him. Yeah. Actually, let me, let me take that back. I had heard of him, but I never knew him. And we actually ended up hosting him at our house. He, him and his whole crew, they had a, uh, an RV, and a bunch of guys were staying at our house. And so I got to hang out with Lou Engle and a guy named Zach Curry, who serves on staff at Jesus Culture right now in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. And we all hung out, and um, we'd go to throughout San Diego and go pray at all these spots. And uh, just got to know Lou. And he, um, Lou, on the last night, on Saturday night, gave this message about the hearts of the fathers turning to the sons and the sons to the fathers. This is Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Mm -hmm. And he gave this message about generational message, and it really hit me. And I realized, you know what? I'm in a community of where I have fathers. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a family where my dad was... You know, he tried, but he wasn't really around, you know. When he came in the late 70s, he worked three jobs just to make ends meet kind of a deal. So, you know, he tried, and but he wasn't really involved in my life much. And so 
you know, that do moment. You think, mm-hmm. Do you think that that was part of your rebellion and your acting out mm-hmm. was, you know, you're not getting this attention because dad's working. He's yeah. trying to live the American dream. He's yeah. tr- and this is what the culture tells sure. people uh-huh. is that you provide for your family mm-hmm. and you, you try and give them a better life than you had growing up. And so right. you work your ass off right. Right. and you provide and you yeah. give things. And that's that was the standard. At, yeah, and, yeah. and that's why you acted out? I think that had a huge part of it. And it plays into my life now, you know, being a dad of three boys. What are their ages? Eight, seven, and two and a half. Yeah. And uh, just realizing, you know what, I want to be there. I'll be honest, there are many times when I fail. Uh, with your traveling. Yeah, and I'm traveling. And running and these events. But what was so, uh, what's so amazing is at that moment, as a 21-year-old kid, I recognized that I had fathers around me. Finally. Yeah. yeah. Pastor Joe Rhodes, Bill Bailey. Some of these guys are amazing. Uh, the Whites, Jerry White. Um, just amazing guys. And so I realized that Saturday night I had fathers. So the next morning, two services, lead worship. And then on Monday morning, I'm going, okay, I got to talk to these guys. And so I go in, grab my executive pastor, take him into my senior pastor's office. And I just let Pastor Joe know. I'm like, Papa Joe, this is what's going on in my life. You know, and I just lay all my sin out there. And it was amazing. Growing up in Asian culture where it's shame-based. Yeah. Thinking I'm going to get the lashing, right? Knowing, even in my mind, knowing that there's grace, there's mercy, that they love me. But... You know, growing up in that culture, it gets so embedded in you. Like, there's going to be a, you know, there's it's, going to be punishment. There's it, going to be, you know. It's not just that Asian culture, though, right. th- that that is. Mm-hmm. It's so much throughout the Christian culture right, as right. well, where we eat our own. Mm-hmm. Someone admits it. Like, I, I was just thinking yesterday of a, a former intern of mine that I had at Focus, who, when I left, they eliminated my position, but got a, a less senior position open, and they hired him. And he admitted to the manager and the director that, hey, I stumbled here. You know, I, I went in and, you know, I was really hurting after my fiance left me and I had a one night stand. It was a one time thing. It's never going to happen again. But I want you guys to hold me accountable. Within two weeks, he was gone. That's they fired guy. him. Wow. They fired him. Yeah. And I was like, now yeah. the stuff that this kid, this young man has deals with in yeah. terms of anger. Yeah over being shunned because he was open and vulnerable. What kind of example is that? Yeah, it's rough. And unfortunately, uh, you see it all over the place right now. Um, But hmm. Papa Joe. Papa Joe was amazing. Papa Joe, Phil, Jeff Lewis was on staff. He was on the elder board at the time. I mean, all these guys came around me. Steve Drake, Bernie Minton. They were amazing. And so they were like, okay, this is what we're going to do. The elders got together. They talked about it and said, we love Yale. We're going to help restore him. We're going to walk him through a process, all this stuff. I moved in with uh, one of the elders' families, the Mintons. Um, Bernie loves Jesus. He was a controller at a power company. I got to live with his family, got to know him. Uh, we'd get up early in the morning and walk two and a half miles, which I actually didn't enjoy. But during those walks, we would talk about where we're at. We'd go through Gordon McDonald's, order in your private world. There are all these things. And it was amazing. And I, Bernie modeled for me. So we go back to the business ministry thing. Bernie modeled for me for the first 
impactful moment that I had in my life that I can remember, the first memory. Bernie modeled for me what it was like to be a Christian business guy, right? Ooh. And so I remember listening to a phone call where he's talking to a guy and he goes, you know what? What did he say? He said, you know, it's all about who you know in this life and in the life to come. And Bernie would drop these lines and I'm sure he was sharing about Jesus with, you know, people that he, he worked with. And um, just an amazing guy. I think at one point he was on the board of Moms, Moms in Touch, Moms in Prayer now. Mm -hmm. Just amazing. And so I lived with them for a year. They had this whole, kept me on staff at the church, uh, just didn't serve as a worship leader at the time and was doing sound, helping, you know, behind the scenes. I'm a behind the scenes guy. I prefer that, frankly, more than anything else. Yeah. And went through this whole year and then they said, okay, we're going to publicly restore you and had, had the two services. They publicly restored me in front of the church and that was good. Started leading worship again, that kind of a thing. Now, I had a moment, maybe a few months in, where I got involved with this girl, did not sleep with her, but got close and I freaked out. And I was actually really, you know, I had jumped through all the hoops, done all the stuff and was thought I had kind of dealt with a bunch of my issues, but I, dude, I was a 22 year old kid. Like testosterone, yeah, I had testosterone was raging, all this stuff. But I was actually bitter at God at that point. Because really? I, yeah, because I was like, how could you let this happen? You know, that kind of a thing. I think the enemy was having a heyday with me. Whatever the case was, I was bitter. And the church was there. Leadership was there to correct me and bring me right. And they did the right stuff. But I ran from God for three and a half years. Really? Going into that season. How so? I resigned from church, staff. I just went through this dark season. Got back with my old girlfriend. More to that story, but just ran away from God and just said, you know what, like, I don't even know how that happened. I just went through this season of three and a half years where I just really didn't want to be, a, like there was something wrong. I didn't know what was going on. I had all these issues and this goes back to my lack of relationship with my dad. Things that I hadn't dealt with, mm -hmm. abuse, mm -hmm. physical abuse, you know, things like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there was obviously a verbal abuse and so emotional stuff and I just didn't deal with it. Mm. I didn't know how to deal mm. with it. And so I ended up registering at a local Cal State University, went to school, graduated, got, got a job. Santa Barbara? Um, Cal State San Marcos. Okay. Because San Diego State wouldn't take me because I got a whole year of straight Fs <laughs> from Riverside because I registered for classes but never show up. And so I um, went to Cal State San Marcos, worked in the IT department, uh, worked my way up. They actually offered me a, a staff position at Cal State running their whole help desk. Mm -hmm. So running about 30, 40 uh, in, in their help desk, you know, and um, just did IT consulting for them. Anyway, in that season, I got back with my ex-girlfriend, got her pregnant, freaked out. Now, I'm not walking with the Lord and had one of the darkest things, moments in my life where I talked her into having an abortion. Totally out of fear. What are we going to do? Totally not her fault. She wanted to keep the baby. But probably more than keeping the baby, she wanted to be with me. She wanted to get married to me. And I was such an ass. 
I mean, I look back on it, such an ass. And I've spoken at women's retreats about this stuff and uh, women's events about this stuff. Like, there's a bunch of guys out there that have been in the same scenario that need healing, that we've made the biggest mistake of our lives. And I hurt this girl so deeply. And um, let's, let's, let's stay yeah. there for a second. What did you do in order to get healing from that decision sure. to a, basically not only to forgive yourself, yeah. really, yeah, to seek forgiveness, but uh, then also really forgive yourself? Yeah. In that three and a half years, I was get, going deeper and deeper into darkness, I felt like. I had to really wrestle with my stuff, and I didn't know how, because nobody talks about it in the church. Everyone wants to, uh, why, you know, uh, pretend like everything's okay, you know? But like, you know, you go to, sometimes you, and this is not a knock on the church, honestly, like there's some great churches, some great ministers, people who've built cultures that where people have openness and they know how to deal with this kind of stuff. At the time, I wasn't even going to church. I tried to go to church. I was up in Orange County at that point. I'd go to church and if maybe once every six weeks and 45 minutes into it, I was like, I can't be here, I gotta go. And so I didn't even know how to get back, right? And how to deal with what I had done at that point, mm -hmm. you know? And it took brothers to call me back. And so it was these guys from my old college days at Riverside that went to this church and said, hey, we're having this men's retreat why don't you come? And so I was like, all right, I'll go to this men's retreat. And so we're hanging out, talking to each other, man's guy stuff, you know, you know, having a good time. And then we would start talking about sin. Mm -hmm. And we had this moment and I had no idea what we were doing, but we we're just talking about sin and going, you know, what? if you're dealing with this particular sin, we want you to get in the middle of the circle and we want, we want, you to pray and we want to pray over you mm. and it was in that moment where i received forgiveness and it was for me i had a few moments where it impacted kind of it's part of my forgiveness story part of my healing story from what had happened and so that was the first big moment where i actually felt like oh man i could receive the forgiveness of god mm. on taking this life cutting it short, stomping out a destiny, mm. somebody. And it took brothers to get me there. And so that plays into my story later on with just brotherhood, holy smokes, promise keepers, men's ministry in general, but it took that moment. Mm -hmm. And so after that moment, I got back into church. I felt like for the first time I could sit in the service all the way through, um, didn't feel that guilt, that intense guilt and shame over me when I sat in a service because I had received the forgiveness of God in that, you know? And so I'm sitting there, I start serving at the church in the nursery, three, four year olds, just loving on them. Then they start asking me, hey, this is a church in Orange County. They go, why don't you come and start leading worship? So start serving again in that capacity, start leading worship. Then another college buddy of mine, another brother says, hey, there's a church plan up in Diamond Bar. Why don't you come and try out? And so I go up there and serve for about a year and a half. Uh, last six months of the year and a half, I didn't have a relationship with the senior pastor. 
um, outside of a, I didn't have a conversation with the senior pastor outside of a staff meeting or a Sunday service. Mm. And so I was like, you know, I had such a relational thing with down in San Diego with Papa Joe and here I am. And it was really hard. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting there going like, how do I do this? Like, I didn't feel like we're united in our purpose. And I remember talking to Papa Joe on the phone because Pastor Joe would call me like every three months, even when I was in that three and a half season, year season where I wasn't walking with God, he would call me up because he was concerned. He was like, dude, where are you at? How are you doing? That kind of a thing. He's been a spiritual father ever since. And so I'm sitting there talking to Papa Joe and I'm just telling him, relaying to him what I'm going through. He goes, you know what? Just come home. And I'm in tears and I'm going, okay, I'm gonna come home. So I, I let the staff know one Sunday, I'm like, I can't do this anymore. And so I uh, resign. And on the weekends, I'm driving down to San Diego, living down there, serving at church, living in that community, driving back up for work Monday through Friday and doing that for almost two years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm in San Diego on the weekends and started leading worship again there. And one day, after second service, this tall black man comes up to me after service and he goes, you don't know me, I'm with the Southern Baptist Convention. I wanna ask you to come and I uh, talk to your pastor and I want you to come and lead worship at this pastor's gathering we're having up in the mountains. And I'm going, what? I'm like, how do you even know who I am? And whatever, and he goes, well, back in 2001, I went to this men's retreat and you were leading worship and it had come around full circle and I'm going, this is crazy. And I'm sitting there going like, do you know, like, you know, my journey and all this stuff? He goes, yeah, I talked to your pastor and he gave me your endor his endorsement. I want you to come and lead worship. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, okay. That opens me up to this beautiful relationship with Thomas Bush, where we go serve these pastors in San Diego, do prayer retreats with their staff. We do this united thing where we, basically the Southern Baptist Convention says, we want to sow $2 million into San Diego to strengthen churches, plant churches, and we're gonna, we're not just dealing with the Southern Baptists, we're gonna work with all the churches. Yeah. It was beautiful. Yeah. And so from 2006, 2008, there's beautiful things happening. We're getting like 100 pastors together on a you know, like quarterly, annual basis to pray together. It was amazing. I met a guy named Phil Migliorati at that time, a guy from Chicago who's involved in United Prayer. We start, you know, doing stuff and it was just amazing. And in that season in 2008, um, I had been investing in real estate in, in Orange County, which was really good at the time. And I was working from home. I had gotten into medical sales and I was working for a billion dollar print company in their, in their healthcare department, working with Kaiser and Tenet Healthcare. And I felt the Lord saying, you know what? We're going to change course here and you're going to quit your job. It's 2008 before the crash. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there going, God, like I got two mortgages. I've got, you know, college debt. I've got, you know, um, and at that time that was like in that season, that's actually, I think 2005, 2004, I'd gotten into cigars. Mm -hmm. One of my Italian buddies that I worked with in the IT department at Cal State we rode motorcycles together and yeah. he got me into cigars. And so started smoking cigars. We would go down to Tijuana, go to the La Casa del Habano, pick up Cuban cigars. Again, I was in real estate investing. So I'd cash out, make a bunch of money 
go buy boxes. I mean, Stevie was ridiculous. Boxes of Cuban cigars. And we'd, I'd have like, I mean, at that time I had an apartment at Vista and I, would, I was allowed to smoke cigars in there. Yeah. And I was working from home, remember? So I would actually like, <laughs> I had, I mean, I would three cigars a day, Cubans. Just, yeah. this was no 25 year old kid. This was stupid, but that's what I was doing. And, um, and 2008, Lord says, quit your job. And so I'm like, you know, really had to think about it, but, you know, had to obey. Yeah. So I was like, all right. So I quit my job. My sister, you know, the attorney, she's like, look at me. What are you going to do? And I'm like, I have no idea. I just know I heard the Lord say, quit your job. And I'm like. What did your sister think? Oh, you're crazy. What are you going to do? You know, and my parents, I can only imagine what my parents were like, there goes Yale again, off this <laughs> right, you know? And I was sitting there going, I have no idea what I'm going to do. And I remember leading worship at an eight-hour prayer meeting we had at Nazarene University at Point Loma, San mm-hmm. Diego. And the last hour of the prayer meeting, these dudes with long hair come in. And they go, we're with Lou Ingalls Ministry. And we're here to announce that the call, which was this stadium-wide prayer gathering, is coming to San Diego. Now, in 2008, there was some legislation uh, that was talking about marriage defined between a man and a woman. And because of that legislation, the churches in San Diego County, a lot of churches that never would work with each other, not that they didn't like each other, but they just, you know, they were doing their own thing, all of a sudden banded together for the first time, at least that I had seen. And all said, we're in, we're going to do this thing called The Call, and we're going to rent out Qualcomm Stadium where the San Diego Chargers played at the time, Mm -hmm. and we're going to do this prayer gathering. And, you know, I'm at Southern Baptist Church. I'm like, all right, we'll serve. Again, Papa Joe is involved in pastoral prayer in the county, so I'm like, all right, we'll do this. And so I meet these guys, and I'm just thinking, okay, this is really cool what you're doing. We'll get involved somehow. Great. Fast forward maybe a couple weeks, I'm in the living room having a little prayer meeting in Buena Park, California with my friends from high school and another brother that I had met at the time, my buddy Troy Lee, and the presence of God just falls in that room like the old high school prayer meetings. Mm -hmm. This is why I love small little prayer meetings. And all of a sudden we're like, we're praying and crying out to God and saying, for, Steve, this came out of nowhere. We're crying out to God saying, give us the youth of California. Give us the youth of California. It's not something we typically pray for. Mm-hmm. Don't know where that came from. Next day, I'm on the phone with the guys from San Diego who are working with the call. And I'm telling them what happened the day before. And they're flipping out. And I'm like, why? They go, you don't understand. Yesterday, when you guys were having, so before you had your prayer meeting, we had a little staff meeting. And we got on the whiteboard and we wrote down every target demographic that we felt like we had to reach and mobilize. And who was going to reach that target demographic? They didn't have anything for you. And they didn't have anything for the Asian American youth. Really? And they're like, you guys are that answer to that prayer. Because what they did that night when we were having our prayer meeting, they went into Jim Garlow's church at Skyline. And they were praying in the chapel and said, send us someone to reach the Asian American youth in California. Wow. And so we're like, that's bizarre. So my buddy Troy and I, we drive down to Skyline and we go up to meet with them. And we just thought this was going to be a simple meet and greet kind of thing. 
And Troy had, a, he had also quit his restaurant managing job at the time. So we had both felt like the Lord had told us to quit independently of each other. And so we're sitting there like gainfully unemployed, you know, with bills to pay. We yeah. have no idea what we're going to do. And we're going to meet and greet gathering. And they just basically say, we're commissioning you to go reach the youth of California, particularly the Asian American youth. And Troy and I are like, uh, okay. And so we go and it turns into a three hour prayer commissioning thing and they send us out. Troy and I have no budget, no money. We have no idea how we're gonna do this, but we know a few people yeah. and we know God we felt like this is the Lord, go out and do it. So the next, I don't know, two and a half months, three months, God provides for all our needs. We travel up and down California. We mobilize, we have five rallies where we call the youth to come to San Diego for the call. The last gathering we have at the church that I grew up at in Orange County in Anaheim. And on my way up from San Diego, I get in a car accident. So at the time I quit my job, I changed my insurance to liability only. My, oh, no. my tires were oh, running bald and I was on the five freeway and all of a sudden, like it does stop and go traffic, I hit the brakes and my car just slides right into the car in front of me. And I get in a car accident and I total my car. I get to where I'm going that night, go to the prayer meeting, a thousand people show up, right? <laughs> Lou Ingle's there, yeah. Lou Ingle preaches this message. It was powerful, 10 p.m., there's like 800 people still in the room praying for a move of God in California. I mean, they're still praying. You get to like, it got so long that the worship team stepped down and they played the CD, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and there was still, by 11 p.m., there's still hundreds of people in the room praying. Yeah. So there was a guy named Lewis there who was on staff. He was an old Young Life guy. He moved to Kansas City, worked with uh, International House of Prayer, then worked with The Call. Came to Troy and I said, hey, what are you guys doing after this event? And Troy and I are like, I don't know, we're just gonna do prayer meetings up and down California. And so he goes, why don't you guys come to Kansas City and we're gonna have a strategy meeting and we want you to come as our guests. We'll pay for the whole thing and we want you to just come check it out. Now, I had never heard of IHOP International House of Prayer, Kansas City at that point. And so I'm like, I only knew about Mike Bickle because he had some tapes, cassette tapes back in the day where he talked about the Song of Solomon. Yeah. My pastor's wife was really into that, intimacy with Jesus, this whole thing. So yeah. I was like, all right, cool. We'll go to Kansas City. We don't have anything better to do. The call came and went, and we saw like, I don't know, like 35,000 know, people come to the stadium to pray, and it um, was just really amazing. And so December comes, Troy and I go to Kansas City, and we're sitting in a room with all these other young next-gen leaders, and I think probably Mike Bickle was there, Lou Ingalls there. They, pretty much lay out this vision for another gathering in Sacramento. And Troy and I sign up and go, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll involve. So at that point, I joined the staff of the call. And I go back to California. Again, no money, no budget. Yeah. Living on faith. I mean, at that time, Steve, I mean, like, people would just randomly, like, give me money. 
Like, remember, I didn't have a car at the time. Yeah. So my brother-in-law let me borrow his car while he was getting his MBA in, at Kellogg in, in Chicago. Yeah. And I'm sitting there. My brother-in-law's not even a believer. He's letting me drive around putting thousands of miles on his car. I'm going to these prayer meetings that I'm setting up, partnering with churches and houses of prayer. And at these meetings, people are like, you know what? I don't know why, but I feel like the Lord wants me to give you this, you know, pays for my meal, gives me a hundred bucks, whatever the deal is, right? Yeah. Gives yeah. me gas money. And I'm just, I'm doing that, right? I sell everything I own to pay off my debts, right? And to just go, that was my ministry. I was doing this thing. And I do it for about a year. I meet the new executive director of the call. He meets up with me in Pasadena one day and says, you know what? We're rebuilding the ministry. We decided in May that year to push everything back a year and says, why don't you come and move to Kansas City and help me rebuild? Because he knew I had a technology background yeah. and he wanted me to help him rebuild the ministry. So I was like, all right. So I go, okay. At that point, whatever little I had, I got rid of everything. I forgot this little moment. I went to a prayer meeting in Sacramento. At that, like a few weeks before I'd been, uh, my brother-in-law came back and said, I need my car back this summer because I got an intern and I need the car. So I was like, great, take the car. You, I think he went to intern at Amazon or something. And so I'm sitting there, I'm carless. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Southern California, yeah. but the culture is you're kind of defined, like your status is defined by what kind of car you drive. Yeah. Like, you know, and so I don't even have a car at that point. So I'm sitting there and I'm like slightly depressed. I think a week before I had gone to Sacramento, had a little prayer meeting, met some people, came back down. And for like the next few weeks, I kept getting Facebook messages and text messages. Hey, when are you coming back to Sacramento? And I'm like, I don't know, man. Like I'm sitting there, I don't even have a car. I'm so depressed. Like I got, how am I gonna even make it up there? And then a good guy who just loves Jesus, Doug, is doing this thing called Sacred Assembly. And he goes, mm -hmm. you know what? Why don't you and Tim come up with me? We're going to Sacramento. We're going to have a little prayer meeting. And so uh, I'm like, great, let's do it. I get in the car with them. We carpool up from Long Beach up there. And I'm in the car ride. You know, you got six hours to burn. So there we're talking. And Tim goes, dude, why are you so sad? And I'm like... I have no car, I'm depressed, you know, like, what am I gonna do? And he, Tim, Tim, young college student, worship leader, loves Jesus, goes, you know what, let's pray. And I'm like, what are we gonna pray about? He goes, we're gonna pray for a car. And I was sitting there going, come on, man. Like, he goes, no, we're gonna pray for a car. What kind of car do you want? Let's be specific. And I'm like, dude, so I'm like in like poverty mentality. I'm like, I just want a car. I love Hondas and I'm like, I just want like a 94 to 97 Honda Accord because I know it's got this F22 motor which lasts forever. Like super reliable, yeah. you know, easy to maintain. I just, I would love something like that. He goes, let's pray for it. So we're praying. We get up to Sacramento. Next morning we have our meeting. We finish the prayer meeting and this couple, Kyle and Allie come to me. They're young. And I had met Kyle weeks before when I'd been up there. And Kyle was, uh, he had just resigned from being a worship leader at a church. He's in his mid-20s. He was serving as, uh, he was working at Whole Foods as a checker or something like that. And him and his young wife, they, uh, they come up to me after the prayer meeting. I'm sitting there with Tim and they come up to me and they go, hey, Yale, 
last time you were up here, Lord spoke to us and there's something we want to give you. And they pulled the title and the car keys of his 1994 Honda Accord <laughs> out from behind their back and they give it to me. And Tim is right next to me and he's flipping out. He's like, no way, no way. And I'm sitting there like speechless. Like what just happened? And it was one of those moments, Steve, where I, I, I just, cause I'm, you know, you know, you read about the men of faith, you read about Jacob, you know, these guys, Abraham, I mean, Abraham with this, with this wife, Sarah, oh no, it's not my wife, it's my sister, yeah. you know, this whole thing, but God counted them as righteous, you know, like they would do all these yeah. things, you know, Peter would insert his foot in his mouth. Like I'm sitting there all depressed that whole, for those few weeks and I'm going like, what am I going to do? And God totally, like even before I knew I had the need for a car, God had spoke to this couple about giving me their car. Yeah. And I'm just sitting there going, okay, God, like, you know, and I just have story after story. There's just not enough time for this podcast to recount God's faithfulness. Yeah. But I experienced that in, in, just That's over cool. and over again. And I think in the last, I don't know, 15 years, I've gotten three cars given to me. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, just sitting there going like, okay, God, like, what's the deal? Like, you know, and um, God's just been so good to me. And, you know, that season was amazing. I got involved in large scale events, behind the scenes guy. At the call, I helped redo all their IT systems, their platforms, you know, uh, online platforms, cloud stuff, rebuilt their merchandise, edited audio, you know, took like a bunch of their old messages, picked out the best ones, built all their, you know, back when people bought DVDs, did, mm -hmm. you know, sermons in uh, series, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, and took all those experiences from the call when I was in Kansas City and um, just had this heart to serve ministry. So that was my ministry. I had some, I was support raised, I'd raised support, just kind of experienced God's goodness in that season. I always experienced God's seasons, but that was a real special season. And then the Lord said, I want you to quit your job at the call. And here I am, Southern California boy, moved to the Midwest, right? That's a culture shock. And I felt like God was always trying to take me out of my comfort zone to get me to experience things. And it's always interesting when it's uncomfortable, how God is preparing, using those experiences to prepare me for maybe not even the next season, but a season that's to come. And so when I look back at these things, I'm like, oh, God, that's why you had me go through that. That's why you had me meet so-and-so. Yeah. And, and so just stepped out, living by faith, started preaching all over Southern California, Houston, Kansas City. Um, started going to Hispanic churches, actually. And I didn't even really? speak Spanish, right? Yeah. Didn't take it in high school. I took Japanese. And started preaching at these Hispanic churches, and uh, which was great because number one, the churches I go to, they were hungry, and then I only had to come up with half the material because they had to translate it. So I, you know, it only had <laughs> half the time, right? And so it was great. But dude, these guys were hungry, and I go to these churches, and man, the youth, the Hispanic youth, would show up, and dude, they just, they were hungry, and uh, it was powerful. And so I'm sitting there and um, just preaching. And what year is this? This was, gosh, 2010, 2011. 
And I had no idea that this was going to happen. But Lou Engle goes, I want to do a, a gathering where we get the Hispanic body of Christ together. And we'll call it the Call of Viva. And Lou's got crazy stories. Like, I don't, I don't even know how this stuff happens. But a, a, this lady, Cindy Jacobs, comes up to Lou one day and says, as God's going to use you, uh, use the Hispanic people, and he's going to use you. And he wants you to know that if you'll eat their food, sleep in their homes, and marry their people, he's going to bring a revival to America. So he goes, I'm going to do this thing, the call of Viva. We're going to get the Hispanic church together. And so he partners with the churches, Sammy Rodriguez, Nets Gomez, a good friend of mine. And they do this gathering at Lake Avenue Church in, in Pasadena. Maybe a few thousand show up in person. A lot of people show up online. But we're, I'm involved, so I'm not on staff, mm -hmm. but I'm serving. And what happened was these relationships I built with the Hispanic Church become pivotal to me. And then I opened that door up to a bunch of other next-gen leaders and they do some amazing things and these guys get involved in, the, in what they call the prayer movement. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had no idea, Steve, that that would lead to me meeting my wife in Houston. So I, I go down to Houston. My buddy who's Chinese American invites me to come down. He's a management consultant at the time. Says, dude, you're, you know, he was supporting me. He goes, dude, I know you're tired, you're stressed. Why don't you come down? By the way, we'd love for you to come minister at the church minister at the church a couple times. They got a great diverse group of next-gen students coming out. And in the crowd is this amazing girl, half Puerto Rican, half Ecuadorian, who grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and then moved to Houston when she was 15. Yeah. Got saved um, through her Indian geometry school teacher. She was in the third ward, really rough neighborhood. Um, she wasn't Mexican. She wasn't black. She really didn't fit in. She had kind of um, just gone through a lot in her life. And it was this particular school teacher and her husband took it upon themselves to minister to, to the students. And on the weekends, they'd come by, pick up the students, take them to Salvation Army, to services there. And he came to know the Lord. Well, she, not a lot of Latinas, uh, especially back then, went to college and then a lot of them didn't finish mm -hmm. because of family reasons. They'd have to support the families or mm -hmm. something would happen. Annie put herself through school, you know, mm. working a couple jobs, that kind of thing. Well, when she was there at school, living in the dorms, she met these two Vietnamese girls, Vietnamese American girls. They hit it off or something and they invited her to go to church every weekend. So there I am at this Vietnamese Baptist church ministering. And that's where I met Annie. And what had actually happened is my buddy invites me to come down and hang out with him for a week in Houston. And I'm like, okay, I fly down to Houston. And as I'm right before I fly down, he goes, how are you going to get to my house or whatever? I'm like, I have no idea. He goes, I'll pick you up. At the time I had known, wait a minute, you're going to be on a date. Right? Like, yeah. don't, don't, you can pick me up on a date? He goes, yeah, I'll pick you up. And I'm like, I'm sitting there going like, I don't know if that's right, but like, I don't have a ride. So I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll, you can pick me up. I'll, I'll take that ride. So he comes and picks me up and there's Annie in the car with him. And I'm going like, dude, who is this girl? She's beautiful, you know, and she's obviously interest, interested enough 
with Andy that she would go on a date. Now, Andy, he didn't go on many dates. Not that he was, I mean, he was a good-looking guy, smart. He had a great job, loved Jesus. It wasn't that. He just didn't go on many dates. So I'm like, who is this girl that, you know? So mm-hmm. I had this, I wanted to know who this girl was. So I get out of, out of the airport, shake hands with this girl. She gets out of the car. She goes, I'm Annie. I'm like, oh, I'm Yale. She goes, oh, so I know who you are. I'm like, okay. I'm like, please sit in the front. Sit shotgun. And she goes, no, I'm going to sit in the back. And I do this thing where I'm like, no, no, you sit in the front. She goes, no, 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 you sit in the front. And she's Latina, so she won that argument. So, <laughs> so that way, even though I'm stubborn, Asian-American male, she won that argument. It would become a reoccurring theme in my life. Anyways, she sits in the back. And so I'm sitting there and on the ride back. Andy's going to drop her off. And I'm like having this conversation with Annie because I want to get to know who this girl is because she's got to be special because Andy yeah. asked her out on a date. So I'm like, what's going on? My buddy Andy is dead quiet the whole ride back. Yeah. But I'm having this full-on conversation with Annie. We're, right? Yeah. We drop Annie off, and I look at Andy on the ride to his house, and I'm like, bro, she's great. And Andy just goes, it's not going to work. And I'm like, dude, what do you mean? And he wouldn't tell me what happened. Well, it turns out they had got into a theological debate before they came to pick me up. And I'm like, dude... Last thing you want to do on a first date is have a theological debate. But his loss is my gain. And um, we ended up doing... Yeah, yeah. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't pursue a relationship with her until like a year later. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't even a year. But what happened was I was kind of burnt out of big events. I, you know, big events are one of the... It's like running a political campaign. You know you've got a timeline. You're thinking a little bit more than a year in advance, sometimes, you know, two years in advance. And you're doing all sorts of stuff. You're running around at the country, mobilizing people. You're dealing with all the stuff that happens in the background. You're dealing with production. It's organization. You're, you know, developing partnerships between ministries, all sorts of stuff. And it's just an exhausting thing. And so I had gotten to a place where I was... In that season, I was exhausted. We had just finished an event in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. I came down, and the last thing I wanted to do was go to another event. And my buddy Andy goes, hey, just come hang out for two weeks in in Houston. We'll just hang out and just rest. So I'm like, okay, I'll come out and rest. And so I come out and rest, and a lot of students are at University of Houston. There's a couple churches and ministries we're involved in, Baptist Student Union, great guy named BJ who was on staff there. You know, uh, there's Lance Phillips, who's running a, a campus a church there called Mission 24. Now he's with Bethel in Austin. Great guy. We were just all involved. We're all hanging out. And first weekend I'm in Houston, International House of Prayer Kansas City comes into town and is doing a regional event. And I'm just thinking, great, another event. But everybody that we're hanging out with wants to go. You know, Corey Asbury's mm-hmm. there and Matt Gilman's there leading worship. Like, Come on, dude. Who wouldn't want to go to that? So I'm like, all right, we'll go. And I go there, and it was great. But I'm just thinking, like, dude, I just want to be a, I just want to just chill, be a normal person. But the next week is this other big gathering that the Vietnamese Baptist Church does every year where they bring, like, 2,000 people from all over the world. And they have all sorts of people. And they had Reinhard Bonnke and all these guys come in and preach. And I'm like... 
okay, I'll go. Because I don't have anything better to do. And about probably the second day into it, Steve, I'm like, I want to just go to the mall. I want to be a normal person and just go to the mm -hmm. mall. And I don't know if it's because I grew up in Orange County, whatever, but I want to go to the mall and just do some shopping. So yeah. my friend had flown in. She had flown in into town and she she was maybe interested in Andy. Well, I don't know. But she had flown into town and we were hanging out. She was a good sister of mine. And I was like, hey, do you want to go to the mall? And I knew she wanted to go. She 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 liked to shop. So I was like, let's go to the mall. She goes, okay. We went to the mall. So we're going to the mall. We're leaving the venue. And I got pulled to the side and someone wanted to talk to me. So I'm like, okay. Get pulled to the side. Someone's talking to me. My friend's standing there waiting for me. And Annie saw her and goes, oh, Yale flew in his girlfriend from L.A. And they're hanging out together. So she's like, she wanted to go find out who this girl was. And so the way Susie tells me later is that Annie comes out of the out of nowhere, basically comes up to Susie, to, to my friend and basically introduces herself pretty uh, slightly aggressively yeah. and then starts interrogating her about her relationship with me. <laughs> and so my friend, the sister tells me, dude, this girl, Annie, likes you. And I'm sitting there going, no, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, whatever. I'm not looking for a relationship. Now, at the time, I'm, I think I'm 30 years old, I'm 31, and I'm not looking for a relationship. I'm in the ministry, and I'm not looking for a relationship. Like, rewind to my history, like, the last thing I want is to be in a relationship. I just want to do ministry, you know. And I had my mom, my mom's friends. I'd go to churches and minister. People would want to hook me up, you know, set me up with somebody, you know. And I'm just sitting there going, like, I don't want a relationship. I just want to do ministry. And so I'm sitting there with my the sister, and I'm like, nope, don't want a relationship, whatever. A mm -hmm. couple days later, I'm just thinking about it. I'm like, you know what? I know who Annie is. We've been in group settings, doing ministry, worshiping together. You know, if there's something there, maybe I should pursue it. And long story short, I'll share this little part because it's funny. We hang out. I go over to the place where she's got her apartment slash dorm and this, this public area. And she goes, let's, you know, let's hang out. And she goes, are you hungry? And I'm a guy. I'm like, yeah, I could eat. She goes, all right. And so she turns on the TV in this common living area. And her and the girls had, you know, they're poor college students. So they had found this TV in the trash. But they never found the remote control. So she's manually switching the channels. And she lands, it's Saturday night. She lands on the USC Washington football game. And I'm a fan of USC football. And she goes, here, watch some college football while I go make you something to eat. And Steve, I'm just sitting there. I had forgotten I'm in Texas. And I'm sitting there going, what the heck? If this girl likes college. I go, do you like college football? She goes, yeah, I go to games and stuff like that. I forgot. Like, I'm in Texas. So our relationship starts off with, I mean, we start dating and we start going to college football games. Case Keenum was the football, was the quarterback at the time at U of H. Yeah, he set the record for the number of passing yards, career passing yards for the NCAA. Yeah. And I remember we went on a date to watch them play their crosstown rivals, Rice, and it was raining that day, and Case Keenum threw nine touchdowns. And I remember... He was a beast. Oh, yeah. 
And he had a weird form, whatever. But dude, he was amazing. And he told me, I don't know, a little into the game, she goes, it's pouring down rain. And when it rains in Houston, it pours. Yeah. And she goes, I want to stay to the end. And I'm sitting there going like, okay. She's, she's tough. Oh, yeah. She's <laughs> tough. She loves Jesus. She's she's amazing personality. And she likes college football. What the heck, man? Like, this is a key. Like, this is a no-brainer for me. And so... That sealed the deal for me. Nice. And long-distance relationship. But, uh, you know, I decided, yeah, there's definitely, this is it. And so we get engaged. Three months late after our engagement, we get married. She graduates. And she moves up to Kansas City. I know I've gone really long with time. But all this to say, we're in Kansas City serving and I think what had happened, I was running a house of prayer right before I was going to get engaged. And the day before I was going to propose, I found out that half the board wanted to, well, they didn't like that I was traveling so much. And so some of them had approached me and said, we want you to step down and we want this guy to be the, the new director of the house of prayer, which I had taken over the house of prayer for a good friend, Michael Grant. Michael Grant had liver cancer. I was on his board at the time, and I'd help him build this house of prayer. And all of a sudden, he looked at me and said, we want you to take over. And I was like, Michael, for you, I'll do anything. Mm -hmm. And so I took over the house of prayer. In hindsight, I probably didn't do as great of a job, but I get it now. Mm -hmm. They asked me to step down. I said, look, this is not my ministry. This belongs to the Lord. So if you want me to step down, it's great. I have one caveat, take over this lease this ministry house lease. Long story short, it fell up through the cracks. I ended up still running the ministry house, mm -hmm. living there. And so for the first five months of our marriage, we're in community housing, which is brutal. And, you know, I guess marriages can go one of two ways in the first year of marriage. Remember, I'm a stubborn mm -hmm. nail. She's got a strong personality. Let's put it that way. <laughs> we butt heads a little bit. Living in community housing the first five months didn't help the situation. Mm -hmm. Me hanging out with the guys all the time didn't help the situation. Let's just say we had many points of opportunities for sanctification. And I learned all the things not to do in the, that first five months. Three months into our marriage, you know, we had all these plans. We're going to, you know, Annie's going to start working. We'll do ministry, whatever. Annie was going to teach. And, uh, Three months into our marriage, we go to a Jesus Cultures in town. Zach Curry's on staff there, the guy I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Zach invites us to be a guest. We go to Independence, uh, to the convention hall there, and we're sitting backstage having dinner. We meet B Banning Leapshire. Mm -hmm. Banning comes out and goes, we're having dinner, and he goes, hey, you guys just got married. And they're like, yeah. And he goes, CJ and I, we got pregnant five months into our marriage. And he, and he goes... Was maybe you guys will beat us. And I'm sitting there going, dude, don't. I'm like, come on, man. Like, you just got married. We want to enjoy, you know, my, I want to spend two years. I mean, kids are amazing, but I want to spend two years traveling with my wife. We had booked a trip to Korea in May. This was April. We're like, we just, we want to, you know, get to know each other better, all this stuff. And he said that to us. So we're sitting down during the event, and my wife is elbowing me. And she goes, hey, I didn't know, Steve. My wife was late. 
And so she's elbowing me and she goes, hey, after this, we're going to go to CVS and get an EPT. And I'm like, dude, don't do this to me. So I, I, sure enough, we get an EPT. You know, I go yeah. out there. We're, you know, poor missionaries at the time. So I'm springing for uh, the generic yeah. EPT. And I don't know, early in the morning, not a morning person. She wakes me up. She goes, hey, I think you want to come look at this. And I'm like, babe, if it happens, it's going to happen. I'm tired. I'm just going to sleep in a little bit. Is that okay? She lets me sleep in a little. Then at like 8.30 rolls by. She wakes me up and goes, she takes a second one. She goes, I think you need to look at this. And I'm like, dude. So I look at this. I had never seen an EPT in my life, yeah. right? So I'm looking at this line. There's another line. And I'm looking at it. And I'm like, what does this mean, right? Like, like you know, and sure enough, we're pregnant. And yeah. I'm like, all right. All right, God. So I'm like. What are you going to do? So I'm resigned to the fact that I'm, that wears off. And then I realize, man, we're going to have a kid. Mm-hmm. And then I get excited. And so it changed our lives. We went straight into having kids. So much so it was funny. I was sitting one time post-event in D.C. And a great black preacher friend of mine in private goes, you know, you're not disqualified from the ministry. And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you know, you guys got pregnant before you got married. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> you know, and it, it was, you know, to, to Annie's credit, I mean, she kept things pure in our, in our courtship, in our relationship before we got married. She was like, we need the Lord to bless our relationship. We are not going to have sex before we get married. And I mean, I'm just a guy. I'm going to be honest, like, you know, but... Mm-hmm. We had kept ourselves pure. And so it was funny when the pastor said, you know, didn't you? And I was like, no, 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 no. I didn't do that. He goes, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I thought it because the kid had just popped out like yeah. really soon. And so it's funny. Uh, Josiah, our firstborn, popped out a week, a year after we had gotten married. Like we got married January 7th. And on January 4th, he was born. <laughs> and it was a hard delivery. Mm. He had a pneumothorax or in the NICU for like 10 days. Mm. And it was those moments where, you know, the kids, the baby, it's got like tubes and all mm-hmm. that stuff into him. And you're just sitting there. And my, oh, one of my spiritual dads, Michael Lazio from Kansas City, is with me. And we're praying, just crying out to God. Like, and you know, you're making the prayers like, God, let him live. If he lives, because he came out and he wasn't breathing. Mm. And they knew. So the Nikki took him and they got him uh, breathing and stuff. But it was just those moments where you're, you're in a crisis moment and you're crying out to God in prayer and saying, God, say, spare his life. Let him live. If you'll let him live, I'll do whatever you want. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. those yeah. moments. And sure enough, he came out of it. But we're, Annie and I are sitting there. She had a hard delivery. And we're sitting in, in the hospital. And they didn't release Annie for a few, like four days, five days. And so we celebrated our one year anniversary watching in the, in the hospital, watching the national football championship that happened to land on January 7th that day. And the hospital, because of the hard delivery and the kid being in NICU, served us steak and lobster for our, our meal. Well, it wasn't for the anniversary, okay. it was, but it just happened to land on our anniversary. Yeah. So we'll take it, you know? <laughs> yeah. That was our anniversary. So. I mean, long story short, I ended up moving back to California, serving as the chief operating officer for a house of prayer. And in that season, I had 
Well, I had worked for BP Oil and Gas as a consultant before that in master data, in big data. And then because of BP's oil spill, this was post oil spill, they had to start, they started divesting of some of their companies. Big oil conglomerates like this, they buy and sell companies all the time. They started divesting so that they could pay some of their liabilities and, and pay for damages, basically. Yeah. And so what typically happens is they hire tens of thousands of contractors because, again, they're a European company. They pay pensions. They don't like to fire people. If they don't like you. They just move you around to a place where you don't want to be and then you just resign kind of yeah. a deal. And so as a contractor, I was there and they took my six-month contract and said, we're not going to renew. Mm-hmm. And I think they actually cut my contract short. And so I said, okay, what are we going to do? I was living at Houston at the time. Um, loved the people in Houston, didn't particularly like the humidity, and said, you know, where are we going to go? And I always felt like Southern California. Southern California is a place. Got to go to Southern California. Mm-hmm. And I've had weird, like, I guess prophetic experiences is mm-hmm. what my brothers would call it. And so I'm sitting there going, okay, maybe California. I'm flying out. I've been serving with the Collegiate Day of Prayer for like since 2012. And so they asked me to go out, uh, a buddy of mine, Jeremy Story, asked me to go out to um, California to represent this Campus Transformation Network where they're bringing all these collegiate ministries together and um, go on this tour for a week with this guy named Nick Hall as they're going from city to city on a three-bus tour to go um, share the gospel and to do this campaign. So I'm like, and represent this network. So I was like, okay, I'll go out there and do that. So on my flight out there, I'm flying to Sacramento, of all places. But I'm on an old United flight, like old plane. You know, you know it's old because they've got the old CRT mm-hmm. TV in the, you know, hanging from the yeah. top aisle. Yeah. I never pay attention to the in-flight movie. Mm-hmm. But I'm sitting there. And what you got to know is in Pasadena, there's this house of prayer called PIHOP, Pasadena International House of Prayer an amazing sister named Cheryl Allen, who's been incredibly faithful for like 15 years, been running this house of prayer. She didn't want to do this house of prayer. She actually was, um, they used to call her Bible study because she, when she graduated from Biola, she went into the hood to, I mean, inner city. That was her ministry and she had Bible studies. And like the gang members and the people would call her Bible study and they would look out for her. It was crazy. And so she was. Yeah. She loved Jesus, and she got involved in prayer meetings when Lou Engle was in Pasadena at Harvest Rock. And Lou started this prayer room and this prayer ministry, this house of prayer, and it ended up falling into Cheryl's lap. Yeah. And Cheryl moved it, and she started Pi Hop 15 years ago. And so Cheryl was there, and Cheryl's, one of her stories is, was around baseball because Jackie Robinson had come out of Pasadena. Like, if you ever watched the movie... 42, Harrison Ford, who's the guy he plays as a Methodist. Branch Rickey. Okay, Branch Rickey calls him and says, he makes the willful decision that we need an African-American in the league. And he calls up Jackie Robinson. In that scene, you see him pick up the phone in Pasadena or his, his, I don't know if it was his wife or whatever, but Pasadena, California. Multi-sport athlete at UCLA. Yeah, right? Huge. And so Cheryl has this whole story about baseball, that and a league of their own, you know, World War II, 
the men go to fight war, mm -hmm. and so the women go into the league to play the majors, right? And so she's got that story. She's got that paralleled with Louis Engle started the House of Prayer, and he moves out to go go to war, so to speak, in the East Coast to pray for the Supreme Court and all yeah. that stuff. And so she ends up running the House of Prayer, and she's got these parallels. And so I'm sitting on that plane flying to Sacramento, and I'm praying about, do we need to move to California? And I never pay attention to the in-flight. The League movie. of Their Own. Yeah. Well, actually, it was 42. Oh, really? Playing. Yeah. Okay. And I've had these moments, like airplane moments, where I feel like God is just speaking to me, and I get so touched that I just start crying. Yeah. You know? Uh, whether I'm reading the Word or I'm yeah. reading a book or something. Anyway, at that moment, I just lose it. And I'm like, what in the world, right? Yeah. And I'm like, okay. And I have a few other confirmations. I actually have this license plate thing where literally I'd, I was flying in one point and one of my friends, he's praying and he's one of these prophetic guys. And he says, Yale, well, actually he's praying and God speaks to him. He says, God spoke to me and said, Yale's coming to LA. And he looks up and he sees this license plate. And the license plate literally says Yale LAX. I, I'm not joking. And he, he's just flipping out. I'll show it to you. And so he's flipping out. So he calls my friend who, who's normally the person. Here's a, here's the license plate. That's crazy, right? And see, he's, he calls my friend up who always picks me up and goes, is Yale coming to town? He goes, yeah, Yale's on a flight today and he lands at five. And he's tripping out. So like I had all these like weird confirmations, like yeah. LA is the place to be. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna move to LA. Moved to LA, we had done this event called Behold at Pi Hop, which is, this, we rented Mott Auditorium. We had about 1600 people come for prayer meetings for two days. And it was just amazing. Um, Misty Edwards, David Brimer, just amazing worship. And mm -hmm. it was just really powerful. Anyway, ended up serving at the House of Prayer and for probably while I was doing that, I, it was crazy. Like, I was taking the train from La Palma, California, doing the one-hour commute up to Pasadena, just serving there, and just we're eking, you know, barely making it and serving and loving it. But Annie's pregnant. We're going to have her second child. Mm -hmm. And a buddy of mine who loves Jesus uh, has a business plan writing company. He had at, at that point written 300 business plans. He had an operation of three different people and he had been three people. He had asked me to come be his GM, help him grow the business with the caveat. Like at the time I was like, I'm doing ministry. Like I'm not, this doesn't really interest me. And he goes, mm -hmm. listen, he has an MBA and an MDiv. And he goes, listen, you can do all the ministry you want. Just make sure you run the company and I'll pay you a salary and you can work from home. Ooh. And so I'm sitting there going like, what? And so I have the conversation with my wife and she goes, do you really have to think about this? Right? <laughs> so in my typical fashion, I'm like, all right, God. So I end up doing a little over committing at that season. And um, Cheryl just comes to me and goes, it's just too much. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. And so I had been at the time, like on the side, I had always been serving with other ministries. So whether it was Collegiate Day of Prayer, or this other ministry called Collide that my friend Del Augusta was running. He's a young African-American minister with the Assemblies of God who got turned away when he was young from a, an event because he didn't have money. Yeah. 
So later on in life, he decided, I'm going to throw the best events that I could put on for free. Mm-hmm. And he would have like Francis Chan, the best worship teams, like Bethel, Jesus Culture, come lead worship, and do it all for free. And so I'd serve as his executive director for like a year and a half, two years. I don't three years. I don't remember how long. It gave me a few white hairs, though. And, you know, I decided to step away from that. We had, I mean, it was amazing, though. We had like, I mean, we had Jack Hayford come and speak at one yeah. of these things. It was crazy. United Pursuit. It was great. So I stepped away from that. Then eventually baby number two came and Cheryl and I were talking. And I, I always, uh, with the first two kids, I decided the first, the last three months of the last trimester, I would just serve my wife. So I resigned actually from PIOP. Still, you know, coming out to the community every once in a while. Love that place. Still drop by whenever I can, but just decided I'm going to serve my wife. And um, we had baby number two come. Mm-hmm. I was running my friend's business and still doing some ministry stuff on the side. Started picking up projects and just thought it was great. I'm sitting there in the house that I grew up in high school, actually. So I was actually in the house that my parents, when my dad asked me to go to the youth retreat, Mm-hmm. I was yeah. living in yeah. and I got saved and I had this bedroom and the bedroom had a walk-in closet and that was my prayer closet mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm living in that house and my firstborn son that's his room now and my prayer closet was right there and to me it was kind of like this whole it had come around full circle my prayer closet my ministry now my son's in that room and it was just amazing for me to be in that house and to just be there. And I realized like, all right, God, you have me in Southern California for a reason. I don't know, but I'm just gonna do whatever I can. The BP experience and then working for my friend Rob in the business plan company really taught me a couple things. It really taught me that the guys in the marketplace are doing ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I worked at BP, the guy that got me in there, amazing guy, loves Jesus. One of the things he told me was, listen, you're here, but I want you to know not only are you supposed to find solutions and do a good job, but I want you to share Jesus. I want you to pray for people. You know, you can do that because you're a contractor, not an employee. Mm-hmm. You're not going to violate the code of conduct. Now, I, I understand mm-hmm. it's still hard, but like I even think about Bernie Minton back in the day. He would drop lines like, you know, um, just to open the potential for conversations to get people to, you know, so he could share Jesus or, you know, have those moments. And so when I was at BP, the the lady that I reported directly to, my predecessor had actually led her in prayer. You know, she was an Anglican, had led her in prayer and she got touched by the Holy Spirit Yeah. in the cubicle. Yeah. And people were getting saved. I mean, I remember just stuff going on. And so it shifted my paradigm and I realized God had called me to serve in that season because I was so much in this ministry bubble that almost so badly that, Steve, I didn't know how to even talk to people in the marketplace. Like, I didn't know how to have a communication. I remember one time a coworker there, he was a full-blown employee there. He was like, dude, you and I live in two totally different worlds because mm-hmm. I didn't know how to have conversations with them. Yeah. And it was one of those moments where I realized like it was a paradigm shift for me, basically, is what I'm saying. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there doing the bit, you know, running my friend's business plan, 
company. We're working with attorneys. We're doing pretty good revenue, and I grew it to a team of 23 people in the next two years. That's quick growth. Yeah, uh, and the market was set for it. You know, the credit markets were they weren't loaning money out to people, mm-hmm. and if you wanted to build anything big and you needed a loan, you started going to the foreign direct, doing foreign direct investment type stuff. Mm-hmm. And EB five at the time was really big, and EB five it was the wild wild west back then because you had all these people that were trying to raise money from overseas, and they were giving out visas for it, green cards. If you provided that your investment create ten U.S. jobs in primary low, low high income. Un, high, low income, high in areas, yeah, and then it was a wild, wild west because you had unscrupulous people there that would take money and all this stuff. And so we were trying to be a light in that space, mm-hmm. and because banks were giving out loans, there was a tremendous opportunity there. And so I grew, you know, we grew the company sixty eight percent the first year in revenue year over year, and the next year sixty five percent. And I remember that first year I'm sitting there and remember Rob said, you can do all the ministry you want. Mm-hmm. Just make sure you grow the company. Well, I'm sitting there, my second kid in my arms and he's probably playing with firstborn and I'm sitting there and my phone rings and I looked down at it and it was uh, my buddy Chris. Well, he wasn't my buddy at the time. It was Chris who had worked for Luis Palau at their San Diego campaign mm-hmm. years ago, back in 2009 calling me all of a sudden. And Chris was working with Nick Hall Mm -hmm. on that tour that I had visited before I moved to California. And I was like, it's not every day Chris calls me. So I answered the phone. I'm like, Chris, what's going on? Great guy. He goes, hey, we're moving forward with this thing with Nick. We're going to try to do the biggest Jesus gathering ever in American history on the National Mall. We want you to be involved. Would you mobilize the West Coast for us? I said, Dude, we could talk about it. I'm interested. Let's get together face-to-face and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Like, great, let's do it. This is like in March that year. We end up trying to land something for months, could not make it happen. So me and my buddy Key, I'm like, Key, let's just do a trip and fly out to Minneapolis and meet with these guys. So we have fly out there that summer. I meet up with Chris, and Chris goes, listen, I changed my mind. I'm like, what's up? And he goes, I don't want you to just do the West Coast. I want you to do the whole country. Help us mobilize people across the country, build a team, all this stuff. So over the, I agree to do it. I'm like, pay me, you know, minimal. I, I asked for so low. He's like, I think six months later, he goes, we're paying you too little. We got to pay you more. I'm like, whatever. Yeah. I'm still growing my friend's business, you know, doing this thing, raising up a team of several guys to run regions. And then we build a whole volunteer force about 3,500 people across the country to be what we call our reset reps. Essentially, it's our street team that will go out there. We've built a system of reporting. So we've asked them to do certain things, go to their church, go to other churches, ask their pastors to make announcements, do, you know, have slides, play the videos, do post on social media, that kind of a thing. And then we built a reporting system where all that data would filter back. We'd be able to f- have feedback and we put reps in every state and yeah. built a whole organization out of it, a network. And so we did that. And then fast forward to July, I think it was July 16th of 2016. We got together on the National Mall and we had like 300,000 people show up that day and um, kind of blew our minds a little bit. And I just thought at the end of that thing, I was just gonna go back home, be a dad, be a husband, run my friend's businesses. At that time it grew into three businesses. 
we had an office in China. We were doing for, you know, getting investors, and we were also doing project management and that kind of a thing. And um, I just thought, I'm just going to do that. Then people started coming to us asking us for help. I'm talking about ministries coming to us, to me particularly, asking me for help. And I was like, and they were great ministries, Steve. Like some, you know, next gen guys that want to have big dreams and goals. Mm -hmm. We want to reach San Francisco. We believe, you know, God's going to touch San Francisco. We want to do this other mall gathering on the, in DC. And I'm sitting there going like, there's no way I could do this all by myself. So, you know, several years, I think two, four years before that, I had met Dion Elmore from the National Day of Prayer. Mm -hmm. And Dion, we had met in DC at this National Prayer Summit. Dion had just joined the staff of the National Day of Prayer. And he gave this message like on the one of the sessions and, the, and it was on Hebrews 11, which is like my favorite chapter and the Bi one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It talks about the hall of faith yeah. and all that stuff. And so I, I'm like, any guy who could preach on Hebrews 11, it's got to be a friend of mine. <laughs> and so Dion and I became friends in 2012. He's a special dude. Yeah, amazing guy. Great story there. And he and I connected and he said, you know, you got to meet Kay here in Mini. So I think I met Kay like in 2014, 2015. We met over Korean barbecue, right? And at that time, you know what's funny is, you know, I had smoked a bunch of cigars before pre-2008. And, and then, then you met Kay. I, and then I stopped smoking cigars. I might have a cigar like two or three times a year. Yeah. I met Kay. <laughs> and it was back on again, you know? And so he has that kind of that effect on that people, effect right? On people, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, yeah. And so Jung and I have this whole story, a uh, whole line. We're corrupting a generation one cigar at a time. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's a bunch of young guys, young ministers, young business guys who are, we're, we're just hanging out, having cigars now all the time. And so I met Kay in 2014, 2015 over Korean barbecue. We hit it off, instantly became great friends. And, you know, when I met Dion and Kay, they were going through their stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I didn't know that's what God was doing, but God was bringing brothers together to love on each other and, mm -hmm. and to bring acceptance and to just build community. Mm -hmm. And this is where Holy Smokes is so powerful. I mean, that's what, Holy Smokes is a great avenue. It's not just time for us to get together, have sticks and, and a nice drink and just share two hours, three hours together. It's an opportunity for us to love on each other, to just be community. And I can't tell Develop you- how deep friendships oh, yeah. and relationships. Oh, absolutely. Which to, is what men need so much. Yeah, and commiserate together, right? Yeah. I mean, like we go through stuff. Yeah. And we get to do that together. Yeah. And that's what Holy Smokes has been to me. And it's been an outlet for men's ministry. It's been an outlet, not just for ministry, but just to do life together. And so, I think when I'm home in Dallas and I'm feeling healthy, I, I'm probably every other day getting together with brothers, having sticks and just doing life. And so that's what happened 2016, end of 2016. I'm getting all these you know, requests to help them with their ministry. And I'm sitting there and some of these are amazing ministries. And so I grab K and Dion because what am I looking for? I'm looking for two older brothers who have been around. They know... I mean, their Rolodex is between the two of them are unbelievable. They know everybody and they've done tons of stuff mm -hmm. and they have, they're pure hearted and they want to help the next generation. 
And I said, Kay, Dion, what if we started together and we did something where we could, you know, pick and choose projects and ministries, but we could go out there and really like help these ministries. And so that's how we started Catalyst Convergence. And we just developed this partnership and we went out and said, listen, let's go and help these ministries. And one of the first projects we picked up was this event called Awaken the Dawn. And I stepped in as the chief operating officer and uh, just went with it. And in 14 months, I mean, we start, I actually filed the entity formation paperwork, you know, went to Richmond, Virginia, did that at the state, did the federal paperwork, started this whole ministry, this 501c3 with them. I mean, we had nothing. We started with a, a loan from David Bradshaw's church for like $36,000 loan. And we, in 14 months, pulled off this event on the National Mall. Three and a half days of continuous worship and prayer, 50 state tents, I think it was seven regional te large tents, and then a big concert stage where we had big gatherings, we partnered with various ministries like United Cry, One Voice, uh, The Call, and had a, a great women's event on the last day. We had probably like 30 to 50,000 people show up on the National Mall. I mean, you could go out there at 3 a.m. one of the nights, and in all 50 tents, there was acoustic worship going on. It was beautiful. Walk a mile down one direction and a mile down the other, and it was just unbelievable. And you felt like the presence of God in, of all places, D.C., right in the smack dab of, yeah. of D.C., and it, if, it was amazing because of, I think after the first night, we got a report from D.C. Metro Police that that Friday night, there was not a single reporting of violent crime in D.C. that first night. They're like, this never happened. Like, this never happens. Like, we don't, whatever you guys are doing, keep doing it. And it was really powerful. And so we sparked a movement with Awaken the Dawn. Tonight they're doing their big tent event. They bought a big circus tent. We call it the Revival Tent. It fits like 3,000. They're doing it in Fredericksburg on the fairgrounds tonight. I wish I could be there. David or uh, any of the guys, Nick, if you listen to this, wish I could be there with you guys. But um, they're just amazing things. They've built, we helped them build a network, uh, a guy named Pia Joe, just a pivotal instrumental making this whole thing happen. And so we built a network of people who just want to see prayer happen. They set up tents every once in a while and do this thing called Tent America. Parking lots of churches, main thoroughfares in cities, you know, city centers, where they set up tents and do 24 hours of worship. And just pretty powerful. And so we've been involved, Catalyst Convergence has been involved in doing all, helping ministries behind the scenes do things. And we always say, if we did our jobs right, you'd never have heard of us. And so <laughs> I think for 30 months, I worked for Promise Keepers on the relaunch of Promise Keepers and uh, just finished my time with them back in October, November of last year, 2020. And uh, just an amazing team there, excited about what they're going to do at AT&T Stadium. Was uh, blessed to be involved with them and do their Nashville virtual event, pull that off. No one expected COVID in the events world. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to pull that off was pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. To have so many people get involved in the stream uh, was amazing. But uh, what was amazing for me personally about Promise Keepers is it gave me an opportunity to meet amazing brothers 
who want to minister to brothers. And so there's all these men's ministries like CORE, Garrett's Involved, Men Alive. I mean, there's all these men's ministries, uh, Fireside 180 up in Kansas. There's all these men's ministries that I've been connected to now. And just to be in that, in just that sphere and go, dude, we're doing all, you know, you guys, you guys are touching men's lives. You're changing families, you know? And if you touch a couple, a married couple or a guy, you know, you're touching their whole family. They say something like, if you can get the husband to go to church, then there's like a 93% chance the whole family's gonna go to church. And I'm like, that's awesome. And so it's just been a tremendous blessing. Um, still running Catalyst Convergence. We also spot, launched a group called Moby Nation where we're doing mobilization and donor development work. So we're going into ministries and going, you know, talking to them about how to do donor development. We've got some amazing guys with us that do large gift stuff, as well as recurring monthly giving. I mean, just amazing, amazing, amazing stuff. And um, just super blessed to have great brothers that we work with. Jung, Kim, Isaac Middleton. Isaac's working on The Send. Um, Jung's been working on some amazing ministries here and there. And um, Jung's got some amazing stories. And now I'm excited for him, what he's going to do in the next season. And so... Doing that, still have my heart in prayer, running this thing called, it uh, used to be called the U United States National Prayer Council. Mm -hmm. It was birthed in 1984 out of a 40-day prayer, fasting and prayer event in D.C. It kind of became the charismatic Pentecostal prayer movement thing. A lot of ministries were involved with. And then Ted Rose passed it on to me in 2017 after serving as his vice chairman for like a year. So I've taken that over it's kind of because I've been busy, kind of haven't given it the attention it deserves, but I'm stepping into that season where I am now, where we've developed partnerships where we've got guys that have thriving ministries, uh, reaching Africa, reaching Asia. Um, got a guy who's doing some stuff in Eastern Europe, actually two guys, one of them doing amazing stuff, Belarus. We're looking at Estonia. Uh, perhaps doing a, a mission space out there. Mm. And so they already bought the property, so we're looking at that. We're looking at some stuff in Southeast Asia, uh, mission space in Ho Chi Minh. I love Japan. Uh, looking at Japan, surprisingly, Japan's been open since the 1850s to the gospel to a certain extent. In the late 1800s, they got away, uh, they did away with the law of banishing or of exiling and, and pretty much uh, putting the kibosh on it. Uh, foreign religions and still to this day less than I think less than 2% of people in Japan are believers less than half a percent are evangelical Christians pretty amazing there they have this history of the Christian century in Japan so I don't know if you know but basically from 1548 or so the Catholics moved in the Jesuits moved in and um, started sharing the gospel in Kyushu, started in Kagoshima. And then um, Francis Javier led about 2,000 people to the Lord in Hirado. And that spawned a church movement in Japan that at one point, church historians say, I think 10% of the Japanese became Christians. Mm. And then um, it was a season where the shogunate wasn't powerful. There was some upheaval politically. And then when the Tokugawa shogunate came in in the 1600s, stamped out Christianity. 
mainly because they thought it was foreign influence and brought persecution and people ran to the caves and the islands and they became the hidden Christians. But I have a huge heart for Japan, so mm -hmm. I don't know. Like I'm praying like at a certain point, maybe I could be a missionary in Japan, yeah. but really what we need to see is indigenous church movements. Yeah. And you know, to think a country with that level of advancement and openness still experiences such a small percentage of evangelization. Mm -hmm. Just need more people who are working there. There's obviously huge cultural barriers. So we're looking at doing things like that, but then also seeing stuff happen at home related to worship and prayer gatherings. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it'll start in living rooms. You know, I'm yeah. involved with all these yeah. large events, but to me, the big stuff is really- the, Starts locally. Yeah, the living room prayer meetings, you know, it's upper room, you know, where the Holy Spirit dropped and things happened. And so, um, you know, look in and uh, don't plan leaving Dallas. Dallas to me is my Jerusalem, you know, and then there'll be a whole movement <laughs> to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends yeah. of the earth. But so that's what I'm doing, just trying to be faithful, be a dad, doing a lot better on that, nice. that end. So that's my ministry, and that's what I'm doing. I have just doing that. 2020 has been an interesting year. 2021, Lord's speaking to me about rest, and I'm not doing such a great job at that because I'm kind of a workaholic, but. Um, struggling to do that and uh, that's just really where I'm at I'm so pleased to be where I'm at even though I'm, you know everyone has their struggles everyone yeah. goes through their seasons that's what's going on in my life right now Yale Kim let's get to rapid fire questions hit it Hey everyone, before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to reshare a note that Kay and I got from an 80 year old listener that lives in Southeast Kansas and still works in his small town family business. He told us, I really lack male friendships because so many of my friends have passed the last few years, so I would value a group of men to spend time with. I'm learning some valuable lessons through the podcast and wish I was 30 rather than 80. I plan to stay tuned for more interviews. May God bless you and your group in 2020. He also talked about how we wrestle with the concept of men and women partaking in fine tobacco and drink because of the church and denomination he grew up in, but the podcast is changing that. When I showed this to Kay at his house recently, we both started tearing up. This is my why for doing this show. So if that moved you, would you consider partnering with us? Kay and I want to develop the website to better facilitate groups. We want to travel and get your stories for the podcast. We want to get back to doing two episodes a week, but we need your help. There are two simple ways you can help us out. Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. That's patreon.com for as little as $5 a month. You can get early access to episodes, ad-free versions of the podcast, free swag like a Holy Smokes t-shirt, and more. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes you can also make a one-time tax deductible donation at paypal.me slash holy smokes club and both of those links are in the show notes thanks rapid fire fire here how's that stick treating you it's good. If I wasn't talking so much, I'd, I'd enjoy you were doing, a little you were, more. You were, you were doing a good job keeping up for a while, and then uh, fail. It just kept going out. 
When did you first try cigars and pipe? You said back in... It was probably what? 2004. Yeah. My buddy, Matt, Mateo, we rode motorcycles together and then right. introduced me to cigars. What do you prefer? Do you ever do pipe? I've done pipe. Uh, first pipe, I've had Roger Hill, Captain Roger Hill, bought me a pipe on a, a trip to Colorado. And so, you know, I got guys around me like Judge Vance Day at Promise Keepers who, who like pipe. I just haven't mastered it. My buddy Nick Rector also likes pipe. I just haven't mastered it. It's, it's a skill. Yeah. And I haven't figured out how to keep it going. That's the hardest thing, I guess. Favorite cigar? Oh, man. Probably a Cuban Cohiba Siglo 6. Yeah, I, it's got to be aged a little bit. I'm kind of a cigar snob, but uh, I would say probably the best year was 2005. Yeah. It had a darker wrapper. It was a really, really good year for... I've got a few old cigars like that that I'm, I'm saving. But yeah, I would say definitely Cohiba Siglo 6, if you can get them in good shape. They're, they're making so many of them because there's a global shortage at one point. Mm. And so um, quality isn't what it used to be, but if you could find great quality Siglo 6... Great stick. Love them. Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? Mm. You've ever paid for yeah. or someone's gifted you that you mm. know how much they spent? Okay. So, I mean, Bahike is probably up there, the 56, but I've had a few of those. I had a, a buddy of mine that I ministered to after his divorce buy me a, a 50th anniversary, Cohiba anniversary travel humidor. I had like eight cigars in there, two Bahikes. Two Siglo Sixes, yeah. two Pyramids, and then uh, a couple of Maduros. That would be up there, but I would probably say this rare cigar, it's called the Boulevard Gold Medal. And they called it the Gold Medal because they wrapped it, the sticks in gold foil. Yeah, I've had maybe two or three of those. Really hard to find. It's kind of like a Lancero size. I love those cigars. And then for me, daily smokes tatuais all day. I just love tatuais. I, um, you gifted me one the other night, yeah. and Jung gifted me one. And yeah. I had yours yesterday, and it was yeah. it was a nice, just mellow, just good flavor. Yeah, I think Pete Johnson an amazing job on that. Um, and uh, I got to meet uh, Don Pepin Garcia a couple times. Yeah. And just totally blown away by the blends. Nicaraguan seed, I'm just Nicaraguan tobacco. They've done a good job. So you can find great sticks outside of Cuba. Best dollar for dollar cigar. Ooh. One that you, yeah. when you go and you stock up. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to share this and I'm going to be a little bummed. I'm going to share this because I know what's going to happen. People are going to go out and buy it and then I'm, it's going to be harder to find. But I'm going to, you know, people are going to probably say if you can find an Andalusian bull, it's great. But my cigar, it's a Holtz exclusive cigar by Tatuaje. It's called the HCS. It's not the Maduro, but it's the number two HCS by Tatuaje. Mm -hmm. I think you can get a box of 20 of them. It's a Toro size, but it's a box press mm -hmm. almost. You get 20 of them for like $152 on their site right now. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the best Tatuajes you can have. Really? I used to buy like a lot of them. Great stick. You can only get them from Holtz. And a tip for you guys, if you're in the Philadelphia area or driving distance, if you buy it at their local store for every, I don't know how many sticks you buy, they give you one for free. So 
I don't know. I think if you buy a box, you can get like three cigars for free. Mm-hmm. So if you're local, go grab a box locally at Holtz. Where's your go-to place to get smokes? That's hard to say. Cigars International is great, but um, if I want a variety, but right now, because I'm such a big Tatuai fan, a smoking lamp lounge, cigar lounge here in Allen, Texas. Mm-hmm. Love going there. Um, they've been great to me, and they get a great selection of Tatuais. So love that. I picked up a Placencia Alma Fuerte yesterday. Looking forward to smoking that. Yeah, they're, they're a great lounge. Favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? Wait, let me say one more thing. Yeah. Support your local cigar lounges. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, oh, yeah. I mean, we just, yeah. So let me say that. It's favorite pairing of sticks. I love Japanese whiskeys. We're having a Yamazaki 12 here in honor of Kehira Mini. But uh, I would probably say my favorite pairing is when I get to go to like a La Casa del Habano or like when I'm in Japan, we'll do like a Cohiba usually like a Siglo 6 or um, something like that, or a, a Cohiba that I can't get my hand, like a, a talisman. Mm-hmm. And Paul, my buddy Paul Vinton makes fun of me all the time, but I love Cuban rum. So Havana Club 7, and then if I'm at a place where they have Havana Club Union or Cohiba or even a 15-year, that would be perfect with the Cohiba. I'm like, that's special to me. Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars? Oh. Arnie's sitting right next to you, waving his Arnie's hands. <laughs> Arnie's up there. Zach Maton's up there. Probably, I don't know if I could say this. Lance Walnow. Lance Walnow. Mm-hmm. And so I've had a couple times. Sorry, Lance, if I'm throwing you under the bus here. It's not. Outing uh, him. Yeah, yeah, but uh, great brother amazing mind a key thought leader love what he has to say got to hang out with him at the union club in philadelphia which is another amazing historical venue where they used to uh get people together to support the union mm-hmm. back in the civil war days and just have a stick with them obviously shelley's back from tavern in dc but just probably lance wall now right now i remember we were at shelley's with um bunch of guys and uh, Rudy Giuliani was in the corner yeah I remember well, you guys posting about that yeah yeah but well, we didn't really get to meet him we were just like let him be let him do his yeah. thing but yeah best place you've ever smoked oh man you know what's crazy so we did an event for a, a foundation at the Constitution Center in Philadelphia and we rented the whole place out and um, got to smoke at the Constitution Center, just on the outside balcony. Mm. And that was really epic, because you're looking at Independence Hall down the lawn, mm-hmm. and you're sitting there going like, dude, the American, I'm a, I love history, and I love our country. And I just look down, and I'm like, I'm having a stick at the Constitution Center, this huge draping US flag behind me, and the Independence Hall in front of me, lit up at <laughs> night. I mean, it was, that, that's great, and then, you know, you get to go, smoke in different places all over the world. But that was, that was amazing. Marvel or DC? <laughs> Ooh. I would say Marvel, but I'm not strong on either one. Yeah. I'm kind of a nerd. Not a comic book nerd, okay. but like a sci-fi nerd. So reading Asimov, growing up as a Trekkie, love Star Trek, still love Star Trek. 
haven't been to a convention yet, but I mean, love that stuff. And so, yeah, I don't know. I would say probably Marvel, though, a little bit. X-Men. So, so you said my next question was going to be Star Wars or Star Trek. Oh, yeah, Star Trek. Although my boys love Star Wars, so I'm getting them on that. But what yeah. is it about Star Trek that kind of drew you into it? You know, I think a lot of the technology that we have, like you think about it, it was driven by sci-fi. And Star Trek in particular, you know, iPads. You think about it, mm-hmm. they had pads in Star Trek. You had, It was just futuristic. And I think a lot of, maybe even some of that stuff, because I, I grew up as a geek, loved computers, that nice. stuff. I think Star Trek really did it for me. But really, the next generation was the thing, because I grew up on that, watching that. Oh, yeah. And I love, uh, who was the original Captain Kirk? Sorry, my brain. William Shatner. William Shatner. I love William Shatner. A lot of respect for him. But I still love Next Generation. Captain Picard. They're running the new series, Picard. Season two is going to come out soon. The cinematography work on it, the production value on it, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Nice. Just great. Favorite food? Oh, definitely it'd have to be... uh, It's a toss-up between sushi, like real good high-end sushi, or Korean barbecue. I'll probably give it to Korean barbecue. If you never had great Korean barbecue, yeah. either in LA or in Korea, we got to hang out. <laughs> we got to do it. Deal. Yeah. Dogs, cats, neither or both? Dogs. Big time. I'm a dog person. It's, I grew up with small dogs, but I love big dogs. Like, I would love to have a golden retriever. Wouldn't love to pick up after all that hair, but would love, yeah, big dog. Nickname growing up or in college? You know, just because my name's Yale. Hey, Harvard, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> That'd probably be it, you know. Yeah. So people don't know this. So my, my, I'm named Yale because my Korean name is Yeil. And so my parents picked something that was closest and Yale was it. But Yeil literally means in Korean, Jesus is number one. So Ye is Yesu, which is Jesus. And Il is the number one in Korean. So oh. that's how I ended up with that name. Nice. I hated it growing up. But now I, I totally appreciate it. My next question was going to be, what's one unusual fact that few people know about you? And that would definitely be one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Name. What else? Oh, I'll tell you this. I am a motor journalist. People don't know this. I've officially become a motor journalist. Last I saw year. you pull up in a very nice Toyota Supra. Yeah, yeah, right? Orange, was it? Uh, yellow Toyota Supra. Yeah, yellow. Belongs to Toyota. Manufacture plates. I got to do a YouTube review on it this week. My buddy Brian Grant, who through Cigars and Holy Smokes I've connected with, is the president of the Texas Motor Press. And I've just been volunteering my time. I met him the other night. Yeah, great guy. A really good dude. Just, uh, you know, I'm a big Toyota Land Cruiser fan. Love Toyota Land Cruisers. I got a 20-year-old Land Cruiser at home. Yeah. Love it to death. He contacted me one day and said, hey, I got the new Land Cruiser. You want to go off-roading with me? So we did three and a half hour drive down to Hidden, Hidden Falls in Texas and went off-roading all day. Loved it. And then just started doing videos with them. And now I'm a, I'm a motor journalist of all things. And so I'm, <laughs> this is my first car that any yeah. manufacturer has given me. They give them out for a week. I get to drive them for a week, put miles on it. And then I do a video review and post it. So this is fun. Are you a reader? No. Okay. I wish I was. I, I'm an audible guy. 
Okay. So Jack Carr's yeah. books right now, I'm really big into that. His fourth book is coming out this month. So I'm looking for it. Jack Carr's a former Navy SEAL. Okay. He wrote, okay. wrote a fictional series and uh, just great stuff. I love that. I've, I just downloaded um, General Boykin's book. So I'm looking forward to, to reading that. Good guy. Do you have a life scripture? Do I have a life scripture? Um, yeah, you know what? So Hebrews 11, you know, they talk about yeah. what more shall I say? Time will fail me if I talk about, and he rattles uh, the writer of the, the names. Yeah. And he says, you know, they were sawn in two. They shut the mouths of lions. They did all this stuff. And they, it says this one line. It says, men of whom the world was not worthy. Mm. And for me, that's the jam right there. They're considered men of and women of whom the world is not worthy. I, I'm like, that's it for me. If you could live anywhere, where would it be? Uh, definitely, it would be Japan. I love Texas. I love America, but I think Japan would be it. Primarily because you got so many people, so many opportunities, even though they're very closed culturally, and even just as a society to Christianity. Probably Japan. They get, you got great food easy public transportation, access to internet. You can do work from there, but I, I definitely, the, the food and the culture, just the people, uh, I would probably say some just outside of Tokyo. My sister lives there right now. Really? Yeah, with her two daughters and her husband. So, you know, I would totally Japan. Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful? Oh man, this should be easy, right? I would probably think of a guy like Norm Miller, uh, Interstate Batteries. I don't know him personally. I want to say like William ba uh, Bill Bailey, who's like a spiritual father to me. Guys who are in the marketplace that are overtly believers, they are intentional about what they're building, mm -hmm. and they're not so much all about building their organization or their business as much as they are loving on people. And they measure it with a different measuring stick. You know, guys that are intentional. I mean, if you want, cool. you, you're listening to this, go look at Interstate's mission statement and what they believe in. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> Final three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you? And what has it contributed to your spiritual journey? Oh, we talked man. a little bit about this, but let's yeah. unpack that a little bit more. I would say Holy Smokes means to me, uh, it's a brotherhood of guys that are not pretentious, that you could be open, that you could be real. You come with your problems. You can come just, you know, back in the day, I was saying, come just as you are. I mean, that's what you can do on Holy Smokes. You have a Holy Smokes gathering. Guys will come to a Holy Smokes gathering that would never step a uh, foot into a church. I love that. It's become, man, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not even the right word. It's become a value <laughs> in my life. Because, I mean, every week we're hanging out, you know, and we're doing life. And so it's become a huge part of life for me and for the brothers that are around me. And so what was the second part of that question? What has it contributed to your spiritual journey? Oh man, it's been huge community, you know, getting to maturity, brothers like Kay and Dion, they won't hesitate to call me out on my, you know, on my junk. And that's the way I want it. Accountability. Uh, it's been great. It's, we all need it. And it's one of the greatest avenues to get it. And so, it's contributed to my maturity and to my growth. Can I share a story real Absolutely. quick? One of my greatest Holy Smokes moments, 
I remember I was flying from Japan to Shanghai just so I could fly from Shanghai back home on a cheap flight. And then when I was flying to Shanghai, Kay put, made a post. He said, Brother Yale's going to Shanghai. Anyone up for all these books? I said, bro, no one's going to meet up with me. This is crazy. It was kind of last minute. And sure enough, was Pete there? Pete Mara reaches out to me. <laughs> and I'm like, who is this guy? I don't know him from Adam. Like, I've never met this guy. And Pete finds out via Facebook Messenger, oh, yeah, this is my first time ever going to China. Like, I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. All I knew is I got a hotel on points and I was going to figure out a way to take the subway or the train in and, you know, Turns out it's like an hour ride from the, yeah. from the airport to that part of town. I had no idea. And Pete found out and he goes, you know what? I'm going to come pick you up. And so here comes Pete, shows up, picks me up from the airport, drives me an hour back. Like I would have not, I mean, it would, I would have figured it out, but it would have been a little difficult because I didn't realize Chinese have, they don't know English. They don't speak English, most of them. And they, you really don't have to. So Pete drives me an hour to that area, uh, Pudong. We get out of Pudong, and we're gonna check into the hotel. Pete gets out and he goes, you know what? He brings out a couple of Partagas P series number two cigars. <laughs> Says, let's, let's have sticks and let's talk and do life. And I'm sitting there going, who, this is amazing, you know? Like, who does this? <laughs> and we're walking up and down the River Bund and we're doing life. We spent two, three hours that night and it was just unbelievable. I shared, mm. shared about life. He shared about what he was going through. And then he gives me, a, I think, a couple other sticks afterwards. Says, hey, I'm leaving out of the town tomorrow for Hong Kong or somewhere. You can have these. And I'm just sitting there going, this is unbelievable. <laughs> it's amazing. The generosity of time, sticks, you know, all that. Yeah. That was one of the best. And, and we've become friends. And every time I see him, I'm like, dude, Pete, what's going on? He's a great so, yeah. dude. Great guy. If you could have a holy smoke uh -huh. with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, uh -huh. who would they be? Can't name Jesus. Yeah, everyone probably says Jesus. But so that's if, why, that's if why I say that. Yeah, so that way it's you off the table. If you can't name Jesus, then you can name other people, even though they don't smoke cigars, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right, okay. Anyone. You know, I would definitely put the Apostle John up there. Partly, I want to know, I mean, dude, so the emperor tried to boil him in a vat of oil and he did not die. In fact, he kept preaching the gospel and it probably infuriated the emperor and that's why they banished him. But like, I want to have that conversation. Okay, if you're put in that situation and you knew, like maybe he didn't know he wasn't going to die because every other disciple did die and they drew yeah. gruesome deaths. Painful. Right? Painful. Thomas speared, right? Impaled by spears in India. You got... I think James thrown over off the high point in Jerusalem. I mean, but John got the vat of oil and I'm sitting there and I'm going, okay, if you knew you weren't going to die, like, and this is how you're going to live to 95, died probably on natural causes, right? Like old age. Like, what was that like? And how has that affected you? And what are you doing now? I would love to have that conversation mm. with them. And he lived long. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure he had a lot of wisdom, a lot of stories to tell. Mm -hmm. I love people's stories. <laughs> so I'm like, dude, drop some of that stuff on me. Um, two and three. I would probably put Francis Javier. He, so Francis Javier, he was 
one of the seven that founded the Society for Jesus, which became known as the Jesuit movement mm -hmm. in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And um, people know him as the, they call him, his nickname was the Apostle Paul of the East or of Asia. Mm -hmm. And so he planted um, churches and was a missionary to China, Malaysia, Indonesia. He did Japan, obviously, India, mm -hmm. uh, where his body's actually interned at in a church in, um, just, I think, in Chennai. I would love to have that conversation with him. He led 2,000 people and sparked a movement in Japan that led to 10% you know, of the population coming to Jesus. Like, I want to have a conversation with him about, about just that whole entire thing. And so, original seven found one of the original seven that found the Jesuit movement, and then I would probably say John Sung. Not a lot of people know who John Sung is. John Sung was probably the greatest evangelist in the Eastern Hemisphere in the 20th century. John Sung was actually a Chinese guy that moved to the U.S. for education in the 20s. Went to Ohio Wesleyan, mm -hmm. then went to OSU and got his uh, PhD in chemistry of all things, right? Because he grew up, you know, with that whole pressure from his parents to go achieve something, do this. So he got his PhD in chemistry and then went to, he got some kind of scholarship offer, went to um, Union Theological Seminary in New York, which is associated, I think, with Columbia. Um, it was an independent, non-denominational thing. He went there. And he actually, I think he had mental issues and went insane. But when he went, tried to go back to seminary, the seminary said, sorry, we can't take you. And then he had a, a God experience mm -hmm. where he got filled by the Holy Spirit and felt called to go to China and to all over Asia to be a, a missionary and an mm. evangelist. And so he gets on a boat to China and on the boat ride to China, he's so moved he throws all his awards and his diplomas into the sea, except for his PhD in chemistry to show his dad. And then decides that he's gonna do this and he's gonna go all out. And then the next, I don't know, 10, 15 years, he does that. He goes to Fujian and different places and shares the gospel. And he's, the, I think, countless conversions to Christ. Definitely over 100,000 people come into Christ. He went all over the place, went to Singapore, yeah. preached the you know, all these places, preached the gospel. He ran this prayer list. He would take people's prayer requests, write them down in this list, and for hours, every day, he would pray. And some people, I think uh, one of my friends who's a church uh, historian, revival historian, David Smithers, told me he, his list would run like six feet long. And he would pray. This guy named John Sung, this, people don't even know who he is. One of the greatest evangelists of the, of the 1900s. Hmm. John Sung, I would love to have a cigar with him. Talk. He had tuberculosis. He pushed himself really hard. And eventually that led to his passing at the ripe old age of 42. Hmm. So, wow. but yeah, I would love to have that conversation with him and see, hey, tell me about wow. life. So, Last question. Sure. If we're to meet one year from today. Uh-huh and I got a bottle of your favorite Japanese whiskey, uh -huh. <laughs> uh -huh. and we're cracking it open. Uh -huh. What are we celebrating? Man, one year from today, probably in my mind, it would be the first year of this relaunch into full-time vocational ministry, is the way I would put it. 
Well, take advantage of this year of rest. Yeah. Which is hard for me because it's like, not only because of my personal tendencies, but like, okay, I'm going to go back into vocational ministry, but Lord, you're telling me to rest. Like trying to reconcile that and learn what that really means. I don't think rest necessarily means doing nothing. It's mm. resting in him. In fact, Hebrews yes. 4, strive to enter into his rest. And I might be even, you know, some of you brothers, the theologians can correct me on some of this stuff, but like, what does that mean? So I'm learning, you know, I'm 41 years old, still learning, but uh, we'll see what this next year, what the Lord has for me. Well, holy smokers, any of you that have insights into rest. Yeah, hit me up. Hit up Yale. <laughs> yeah. And Please. talk to him about the ways in which you have experienced rest and the ways in which you have just share your stories with you. Yeah, please. Please do. Yo, Kim, thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast, brother. Thank you, brother. I never do these, but thanks for making me feel so comfortable. Bless you, bro. <laughs> <laughs>